Romine, where did you grow up? I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. And um, that's, it was an automotive town. Still is, but not like it was. And um, I was uh, I was an artistic kid, you know, coming up. You know, um, I did all the little school plays and and the, and the glee clubs and all that kind of stuff. But I also was in the sports. And um, I left the business, the entertainment business, if you want to call it that, back in those days. I left it and got into sports. And I played baseball, Little League baseball, and then I, when I got to high school, I ran track and played a little football. But then um, when I went to college, I was totally into football and track. And I actually had a, a football and track scholarship. So I'm one of the few of my peers or people from that age that still don't owe student loans. I got problems with my body, of course, from injuries, but, oh. but I don't owe anybody any money like that. Hmm. Yeah, that, that might be a better oh, problem. Yeah. yeah, than, yeah than, but, uh -huh. but yeah, Detroit, Detroit was, um, Detroit at that time was an interesting place because um, it was a lot of stuff. I was a kid, but the whole Motown thing and and uh, at one point, Detroit was one of the foremost theater towns in the country, believe it or not. And uh, a lot of the shows would start out in Detroit and go to Broadway or go wherever they were going to go, like out east or whatever. But Detroit was one of those places. And musically, uh, Prince, you know, one of his first places that he really started becoming famous and got off on was in Detroit. And he always talked about how Detroit was a special place for him, you know. And I remember seeing Prince way back when he first started. I'm like, this guy's weird, but he's good. <laughs> I mean, you know, playing and singing. Uh -huh. I'm like, All those instruments. boy, he's strange looking, you know, little guy. And he was really good, you know. So he kind of basically started in Detroit. So Detroit is, Detroit is, a, is coming back now, which is good. You know, it's really coming back. Uh, I was there for the holidays and driving downtown and around different parts of Detroit, I was just amazed at how it's changed. Cause see, I went to uh, Wayne State University in Detroit, which is in the heart of the city. And when I went, it was this modern, you know, 35, 40,000 students college in the heart of the ghetto. I mean, it's completely surrounded by the ghetto. So you would be over here on this side of the street, you had college professors, no, the other side, you had crackheads. <laughs> so it was like, okay, it's different. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was interesting uh, coming up in Detroit, you know. Were you um, pushed more towards sports? Or, I mean, because you probably saw a lot of people that you grew up with that maybe had a plan for what they're going to do after high school. And I know acting is always sort of, especially maybe... Where we're more of a, a masculine, I'm not saying it's not a masculine pursuit, but but something that was considered more of what, uh, you know, acceptable maybe at that time for a man to do. Well, no, I uh, I just uh, I always liked playing sports as a kid because I was just I was just into it. I was uh, I was the youngest of uh, four, and my oldest I have three older sisters, and uh, so that was something that I did. Uh, my father was very athletic. My father was very athletic. And, you know, <laughs> I, I'll say to this day, my father was way ahead of his time. 
you know, had my father came up 20, 30 years later, he probably would have played professional baseball. I mean, my father was that athletic and that tremendous of an athlete. So I picked up a lot of my athletic uh, talents from him. <clears throat> and, um, but sports was always my, my, my I love sports. I, I was naturally into the arts. I mean, I used to, when I say the arts, I drew and painted. And I ended up having a minor in that in college. And uh, my specialty in, in art was pastels and pencil. And um, people say, well, you don't, you don't, you don't do oil painting or, or that. I said, well, playing sports in college, to do oil painting, it takes time because you can't just do this and lay it on. You have to really be intricate. So in college, I was always on the road traveling or whatever. So in art, I mean, I had to do it in school, of course. But my best work was always, you know, pastel and pencil, which was a little quicker to do. And uh, coming up as a kid, I was in all of the after-school programs because at that point, they used to have after-school programs for all of the kids that are gifted in, in art, music. They had all that kind of stuff, even though we had it in our school system at that time. And it's kind of unfortunate now, the way things are now, as you know, a lot of that's gone. We don't have a lot of those programs anymore because, you know, uh, they cut the school budgets and everything, and a lot of kids... I remember they used to have, uh, in high school, they had orchestra one, two, and three, and, and had all kind of choral groups and stuff in high school. So it was like gone. Now also, another thing I was really into was carpentry and stuff, as far as shop class. I mean, and my mother was always afraid. She said, oh, he's going to end up being that. And being a carpenter or being a person in a trade right now, is you can make a ton of money. And they're bringing that back now. And, and they're finding that, you know, a lot of the people that went to college or wanted to go to college that didn't quite make it were more mechanically inclined as opposed to being college preparatory inclined. Okay, I happen to be, I think, both. But, I, I, matter of fact, I'll, I'll say this and I brag about it. I made my own voiceover booth for my voiceover work I do as an actor. Oh, wow. And I bought some plans. And they, when people see this that know me well, they're going to be like, oh, here you go. He's launching into that. Because I'm always <laughs> talking about that stuff, you know. And they say, stop bragging. I say, but I bought plans online for this thing. And once I bought the plans, you know, I sat back and said, oh, I got so excited. I went out and got all this equipment and everything. And all I got to, I got stuff all, it gave you a list of things to get, like the panels and the, and the, uh, the sound uh, uh, absorption uh, stuff for the walls to keep the sound out. I got the two by fours. I got all this stuff to make a four by a six foot or seven foot booth, which you record in. And once I bought the stuff, I had it in my living room in my apartment and I sat there and I said, I don't know what the hell I'm doing with all this shit in here. And I mean, my girlfriend came by and says, why in the world would you do this? I'm like, uh, <laughs> I bought these plans and it, it'll work. And all my friends and all the guys would come by and everybody would laugh at me. It was like when Noah, you know, when built, he built, Noah built the ark, how everybody was partying and laughing at him because he was out there building the ark and everything. That was what was kind of me. Everybody come by and laugh. And I called my mother up, you know, my mother, I said, I said, Ma, I said, I don't know why I did that. She says, what you need to do is you need to start at the beginning other other plans start from the first part of the the plans 
and take it step by step. Now this is my mother telling me this, and I'm like, oh, okay. So they give you a DVD, and I watched the DVD about a hundred times. I'm like, okay, okay. And she said, you were good in shop. You got straight A's in that stuff. You can do it. So I started building this thing. You always start with the foundation. As we know, the foundation is where we start in everything. Whatever you do, whatever, you always have to start where? At the beginning. And it's always the foundation. You know, as an actor, as a film person, you know, like yourself, you have to start at the beginning and start, okay, I have to start learning from the beginning. So I did that and I built the booth and I had everybody was shocked. They were like, you actually built this damn thing. And I was more shocked than them. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I knew what I was doing. I'm like, no, I didn't. I was like, I actually built it. And I mean, it's a full booth and I do professional work out of the booth. Wow. Yeah, so I mean, really I done cool. deviated from where we started, but I mean, I, I mean, this is kind of thing that, you know, as a person of, in the arts, that's how I got started in the business. That's how I ended up branching into this and I couldn't do anything else. I got fired from every, every real job I've had. Was there a point in your life early on or whenever where you said, this is all I'm gonna be able to do is be an actor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had that, I had that, uh, you wanna call it an epiphany, I had that way back, um, I had it when I got out of college. I, uh, I, my, my father had a bowling buddy who, who was a claims adjuster uh, for Aetna Life Insurance. And uh, Mr. Blackwell, you know, he got me a, a job coming out of school for Aetna. And the funny thing is, Aetna, I was supposed to be outside claims rep, which means that I was supposed to work in the office half the time and go out and take pictures and go do stuff out in the field. It's ironic that I couldn't handle the, the freedom of being out. I, I didn't have the discipline at that point to handle the freedom of being out on the road for the job, I couldn't handle it. And what's really crazy is, in what I do now, is <laughs> all that, you know, because I'm self-employed, I mean, you know, so, and I've been that way for years. But I couldn't, I couldn't stay on that job because I recognized that it wasn't for me. And I, I, I was like, okay, this is really weird, I can't do this. And the day I quit that job was the day that I was supposed to be there for a meeting and I missed the meeting because I was just really at my at my little apartment. I was just like, oh man, I, this is just not. I, I'm I'm not gonna make it. I mean, I was floundering like that in my mind at that point, and I was like, I'm not gonna make it. So I was late coming into the office. When I got there, my boss is like, Where the hell were you? You missed the meeting. I said, There's no need for that. He says, What do you mean no need for that? I said, <laughs> I quit. So I had you know my dictaphone and my little camera and all my stuff that you use out in the field. I put it on his desk. I said, I quit. He said, you quit? What do you mean you quit? I said, I quit. So they really liked me on the job because you know my personality, people loved me on the job because I had everybody laughing all the time. And I told him, I said, this is not for me. So he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, he took me, he was, my, he was my supervisor. He took me to the manager of the floor. And in, in corporate America, the higher you go up, the, the more important and more prestigious and the bigger your job. So they took me floor by floor to the, all these different people, the superintendent, and they had me in this office, these plush offices, and they sitting there grilling me. You can't leave, why are you leaving? What are you doing, we trained you, we did this. I said, I just, I'm sorry, I can't do this. 
and this is at that affirmative action kind of thing, you know, where they said, they're going to think we, we ran you out. I said, no, 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 no. I'll sign any papers you want saying that you, you, I said, you're the sweetest, nicest people. They were really nice people. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is not me. They took me all the way up to the top to the president. And he's sitting behind this big giant desk, you know, like in the movies where they had these big executives. He had that kind of desk. And I'm sitting there like this, a little young guy, 22 years old, sitting like this. And he says, uh, what's going on? I said, I I'm supposed to be in show business. <laughs> he says, what? I said, I'm supposed to be in show business. He said, well, why is that? I said, well, I talked to a buddy of mine who's not in the business at all. And he said that if there was one job you could do for the rest of your life, that no matter what happened, or if somebody put a gun up to your head and said, quit that job or I'll blow your head off. He said, you're supposed to say, shoot. Meaning, this is it. And my buddy told me, he says, think about it. Because he's real, he still is to this day, he's a very philosophical guy. And uh, he said, go home and just think on it, pray on it or whatever you want to do. And I did. And he said, call me tomorrow. And I called him the next day. I said, I want to be an actor and a singer and all that. I want to be in the entertainment business. So he said, well, then you need to let your job know. I went in and quit the job. My parents naturally freaked out. They were like, what? But that was, that was what I had to do. And I was engaged at the time, and I lost my fiance because she had my life all mapped out for me. I was supposed to do that job. Because being a claims adjuster for, for in corporate America, you basically are a law clerk, technically, because you compile all the information for a different claim or whatever, and I was handling some real big claims, and you take that and you give it to the corporate attorney who goes into court to try to fight the other side because either they don't want to pay a lot of money or they don't want to pay any money at all, so they go into court on it. So that was basically what the job was. So she said, you're going to do this job, you're either going to get your master's in business, or you're going, to get, you're going to go to law school, and she had it all mapped out. I said, I can't do this. This is just, I mean, I was having problems with my stomach. I mean, you know, I was like losing sleep and everything. I was like just, I said, I can't do this. I quit that whole thing. She dumped me, and it seemed like overnight things started happening. And I went to a, and this is really crazy, but I went out to dinner with a couple of friends and they were consoling me about it. And I'm like, I might have made the, the wrong mistake. I might have done something. I might, I should have done what she said. They said, no. And this is, this is crazy, but I started looking at the silverware on the table as they were talking to me, consoling me. And I was just looking at the silverware. And all of a sudden I came up, I said, within the next couple of years, I'm going to be doing commercials and I'm going to be doing stuff and I'm going to be in music and I'm going to be singing and acting on stage. And then they said, really? I said, yeah. Within the next couple of years, I was doing that. I got in a show in Detroit called This Is Your Detroit. <laughs> and it was a 30-minute show. You remember the, I don't know, you might be too young to remember the Mitch Miller and all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. The singers and all of that, yeah. like Lawrence mm -hmm. Welk and all mm -hmm. that kind of, yeah. I mean, this is way before all our time, but... It was one of those kind of things, and we did a 30-minute show about the good things about Detroit, which should have lasted about two minutes, but we stretched <laughs> it out to 30 minutes. Uh -huh. And I sang and did all this, and I actually had studied. See, I'm operatically trained. 
I started, I met a guy by, all by accident. Friend of mine's mother owns an antique shop and I wanted to take voice lessons. So this man came in, Mr. Harris came in to buy an antique uh, a chair or something. And she said, uh, I've seen you in here before. She, the lady that owns said, what do you do? He says, well, I'm a music teacher, you know, at one of the high schools. And he says, I teach, you know, voice and this and that. She says, oh, uh, my, my son's best friend, you know, who's, he's like my son. He wants to take music lessons, voice lessons. Well, give him my number. I studied with this man for five years. And I learned operatic technique and everything. And then he sent me to his teacher, who was like an, an Italian man who had actually trained and worked with uh, Pavarotti and all those people, oh, you know, uh -huh. in Italy. Wow. So I became operatically trained. I never really used it because foreign languages is always one of my weaknesses. So I was like, wow. So I actually had an audition. My teacher said, okay, I want you to go audition for the Met. They're coming in town. I said, the Metropolitan Opera? He says, you won't get it because you don't know the language, but I want them to hear you. So here I am, you know, with big afro, wearing a tank top and some, and some jeans. And you know, I'm buffed at the time because I'm just coming out of playing sports. So I go to this uh, audition. The only one like me there, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Looking just like this. I walk in there, so all of these people, you know, these divas and all these guys, and I mean, opera people really like that, you know, oh, like yeah. the stereotypes. Mm -hmm. They're all in there, me, 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 doing that. <laughs> so I walk in, so the first question they ask is, they say to me is, um, excuse me, but uh, you might be in the wrong place. I said, well, is this where they're holding the auditions for the Metropolitan? They said, uh, yes. So <laughs> I said, well, this is what I'm here for. So the people stopped. It's like E.F. Hutton, remember E.F. Yeah, Hutton? Uh -huh. Everybody did that. I'm old enough to remember that. Right, yeah. so, <laughs> so what happened was they said, oh. So the person came out to say, okay, who's next? All of the people outside said, let him go, because they wanted to have a good laugh. So they let him go, I said, oh, you sure? You all been here? They said, no, 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 you go. So the people looked at me, the lady looked at me. I go into the, into the, into the auditorium where they had a piano on stage. And everybody there is looking at me, you know, a big panel of people from the Met and the Detroit uh, Opera and the Metropolitan Opera, all these people from the symphony and everything are sitting in there. And they're all looking at me like, uh, so what are you going to sing? You had to do a dramatic piece and you had to do a light comedic piece. I said, I'm going to sing for my dramatic piece, Elisiswar de Mar from uh, Tosca, and I'm going to do Una Futiva Lagrima from the Elisua de Moore. And they're like, really? They said, well, you gonna, which one to do first? I said, oh, well, I wanna do the, the lighter piece first to warm up. And I started singing, Una furtiva lagrima negli occhi sporrum sindor. And the people looking at me like this. I sang that, and they were like, looking around like this. Then I sang my dramatic piece, and I hit the high C, which is the tenor. I'm a tenor. I'm a dramatic tenor, which means I have a, the big tenor voice, okay? There's a light lyric tenor, and I'm the heavier tenor that's almost like a baritone, which is the rare voice. So they hear me hit this high C, and the man from the Met jumps up, and he runs up to the edge of the stage, and oh, he starts speaking Italian. And I look at him, I say, huh? <laughs> he said, oh, you don't speak in Italian? I said, no, I don't speak none of that. So that was the end of my Metropolitan 
opera experience in my operatic aspirations because I couldn't get the language. So I used it for musical theater. And I was singing in all the musicals around Detroit. And I mean, I was singing, you know, Oklahoma and Oklahoma, you know, because the voice was strong enough to do, if you can do opera, you can do anything else. It's like, it's like ballet and dance, you know. Ballet, if you notice people that study ballet when they do jazz or whatever, you can see the difference. Their stuff is just, their line and all of that is just so much more pronounced. So I did musical theater. I got an agent who came to see me in a, in a musical and that's when I got my commercial thing going. What happened when you walked past all the people that were there that when you, in the audition? Oh, when, at the, when I left, mm -hmm. they were all like, uh, looking at me like, <laughs> and one guy came up and says, you have the most incredible voice. But see, my teachers trained me. I mean, I did, I trained for eight years. And, and, and the thing is, um, my car broke down and I would like catch the bus. And, and in Detroit, catching a bus is like being, you know, you remember Mad Max, you know, <laughs> you know, out there, in the, you know, out, there in the, in the, out there in the wilderness, you know, where you just out there. I mean, getting a bus ride in Detroit is crazy. So I would be in the cold going to my music lessons. And I had, a, I ended up taking a little job. I, I took a job as a, working at a halfway house for some little kids, you know, just to sustain myself. And I substitute taught just to keep the money flowing while I trained. And you know, my parents and everybody was like, oh, he's just flipped out all the way, you know. Why? And because they, they, didn't, they didn't think I was serious or I had really, they didn't, they didn't believe what I believed. And I felt it, I mean, I knew what I was supposed to be doing. So when I got my first agent, my first agent in, uh, as, a, as a commercial actor and doing TV and film stuff, when I went in the interview, I had a friend of mine's sister take my first headshots. And I mean, she was in, like, she was in uh, photography school. So she had those, you know, those pictures like that, you know, the ones like, you know, the prison pictures, you know. <laughs> she had, cause she didn't know any better and I had those. And I had to, it was the GQ thing. I had to, I had the GQ look, you know. And when I took the pictures to that agent who saw me in the, in the, um, in the musical, cause she came up and gave me a card. And I was the only one she gave a card to, and all of, of course, other actors and everything were like, they were mad. Oh yeah. So I went to see her, and um, she says, do you have any pictures where you're smiling? I said, uh, no, she said, smile. I said, smile, she said, you got a beautiful smile. I want you to go see this photographer. I said, well, she said, I know you don't have much money, but go see this photographer, tell him I sent you. He's gonna shoot you. This guy shot me some new headshots where I'm like this, the whole thing. And she had me come back, so she, she handed me a script. She said, okay, read this. It was a Kentucky Fried Chicken commercial script. So I had never done anything like that, so I read the script. She says, you're gonna be, do you're gonna be good in uh, commercials one day. You're gonna be good. But you'll never do voiceover. I'm like, oh, what's a voiceover? She told me, I said, oh. So she signed me and everything and sent me out on stuff, but it kind of upset me the fact that she said I would never do voiceover. Because it's like, how do you know I'll never do voiceover, you know? I, so at that point, it became a burning obsession to learn voiceover. So as fate or God or whatever, who would have it, I moved into an apartment where this guy down the hall from me named Dennis was an engineer at a recording studio. 
And we met in the laundry room. And he said, hey, you're new in the building. I said, oh, yeah. He said, so what do you do? I said, well, I'm trying to be an actor or whatever. And he said, oh, he said, what else do you do? I said, well, that's basically it. I got a little regular job. And I said, but I really want to try to do this voiceover stuff. He says, really? He says, uh, when you finish your laundry, knock on uh, my apartment down. I'm down the hall from you because I know where you're at. I knocked on it, opened his door. He's got a full recording studio. I said, what is it? He says, I work at a studio where we do voiceovers. He taught me how to do voiceovers. Oh, wow. Right. So when I left Detroit, I moved to Chicago. I became one of the top African-American voiceover artists in Chicago. I did everything from McDonald's to uh, Amoco, which is, was gasoline. I don't know if they're still around. They don't call it Amoco now. I did every product that you had, Pepto-Bismol. I did everything. And before I moved out of Chicago, I was going back and forth from Chicago to San Francisco. I became the voice of Bank of America. Oh, wow. General Market. Wow. And I became the voice that says, Banking on America, Bank of America. So all those 15 years, it was 15 years at that point. 15 years later, I became one of the top voiceover guys in Chicago. And it got to a point where I knew it was time for me to leave. By this time, my parents were like, believing me, like, oh, hey, you're doing well. I was making a real nice living. And I said, well, it's time for me to move to LA. And they were like, why? You're doing so well. You, you're working, you know, because I was a complete F up, you know, <laughs> the fuck up in everything else. So you, you've been doing this all these years now. I'm like, no, it's time to go. I came out to LA and I would come back and forth. And the first thing I did, uh, I had an audition for a TV show. I booked it. And it was for uh, Life Goes On, the little show. You remember about the little oh, boy? Yeah. With Down Syndrome. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah Corey or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, booked it. I booked that. And when I was, I was in the makeup room in the trailer, uh, Patty Lapone and all the stars were in there being made up. Yeah. They were real nice. Welcome to the show. And uh, she said, So, how long have you been out in LA? How many auditions have you had? I, I said, <laughs> um, I just got here two weeks ago, and uh, this was my first audition. Everybody said, what? <laughs> I did a recurring on the show, did a couple of episodes on the show and whatnot, and then I started doing other stuff, and then it became a tug of war between here and Chicago. So eventually I went back to Chicago because I was involved with another woman who didn't want to leave because she was running her own insurance company. So I'm like, I said, well, we need to move to L.A. She says, no, I'm making much more than you. So that, that whole situation that engagement went out the window. So I said, you know, I'm just a complete loser when it comes to, you know, getting married. So I said, well, maybe it's time to focus on the career. So I came here and um, I started working and working and then we went on strike. And all my commercial stuff happened to be running out at the same time we went on strike. I had partied all my money away here, hanging out and doing all kind of crazy stuff in LA. So I said, okay, I gotta find a little job. So I took a little part-time little hustle job, which turned out to be like a seven-year job almost for Nielsen. And uh, I was handing out movie passes and stuff. So that was a nice way, you know, to get out to meet people. It was flexible enough for my auditions. And I met a lot of women. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a running theme here about uh -huh. women. And I met a lot of women because it's easy. See, when a guy has, a, has something he's selling, it's easy. You disarm women, you know. But when you walk up and like, hey, how you doing? You know, the women are like, uh, excuse me, you know, that wall comes up. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, would you like to see a movie? 
So I met a lot of women like that, and it segued into relationships, you know. Yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah, it works, you know. So that's what basically happened on that. And then after a few years of that, I started really clicking in the business again here. And I didn't have time to do it. And then at that point, you know, I wouldn't even show up for there. They eventually had to fire me from that job. And, and all the people on the job and all those people, you know, who I work for, they were upset. They're like, oh, well, you can meet. I said, don't worry about it. That's cool. I said, I'm, I'm going to do this stuff. And so I've been, doing, um, I've been doing commercial and TV and film stuff ever since as far as that. Um, I've done over 200 commercials, 200 on-camera commercials, wow. you know, over the years. And then I've done uh, quite a few voiceovers. In fact, I have, um, I'm on the Rocky and Bullwinkle, uh, the new Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. Wow. I play uh, this character called Rafi Tuss. Texas billionaire. Oh, hey, little squirrel, I like that squirrel you got there hanging out with that, that, that moose with the three-cornered head. You know, Bullwinkle? Yeah, I like him. So I became that character and then also did, uh, I'm also on Barbie's Dream House. I play a couple of characters on there and then I, I'm on this little show called uh, Wild Grinders. It's kind of like the little rascals on skateboards. And I play the little dog on the show and he's on a skateboard. So. I mean, I do that. I don't. I haven't done those recently, but I, I got those still running and whatnot. But um, it's it's been a good experience, you know. Well, I mean, you mentioned a few times, kind of having to choose between what you wanted to do in life and a relationship. Right. And I think there's a lot of pressure on people, especially under thirty, to make that choice and to to get settled down. If there's someone listening right now, and let's suppose they have something that's a, a good offer or they have something that's promising in one city and then they have someone in another city that they probably still care about and a life that's quote unquote planned out <laughs> but they're on the on the fence what, what what kind of like let's say big brother advice would you give someone follow your heart you have to always follow your heart because if somebody has your life planned out for you that's a problem right there because unless you have your life planned out the same way they have it planned out, it's not going to work because eventually you're going to, you know, you heard, the, you always hear about people outgrowing each other. Well, they've, uh, we've, we outgrew each other. What that means is you didn't outgrow them. You just grew up, you know, and you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's not like you don't care or love them. It's just that you, you've evolved. When I say grow up, you've, you've evolved into who you are, who you want to be. And if, if, if it's not in that cookie cutter kind of thing that they have planned for you, and you know, you, they have you boxed in here, you know, have you boxed in, and you grow and you outside of that box, that's conflict. So you have to, you have to be who you, who you are and, 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 and hopefully that person or someone else will be in line with what you're doing because you got to be happy. I mean, nothing worse than being in a relationship. I've been there where, you know, you're trying to be something that you're not. You're trying to conform to somebody else's expectations, trying to be what they want you to be. It's not going to work because eventually you're going to, you're going to bolt from that. You're going to run from that because the real you is always going to come forward. You can't be phony in a relationship. You can't. It's impossible. Because eventually, you, you, go, you, can't be, you can't act 
in a relationship. You can act on stage, you can act, you know, wherever else, but you can't act in a relationship. You can't be this person, yes dear, whatever you say dear. <laughs> you can't do that, but so long. Eventually you're gonna just say, oh, fuck this, I can't do this. And then, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna explode. So you have to, you know, you have to be you. And, and if it means that you have to, you know, let that relationship go, then you have to let it go. I mean, life is hard, as we all know. I mean, you can't, you can't be what somebody else wants you to be. You have to be who you want to be. And like, like I said, if it doesn't fit what they want you to be too, then it's not gonna work. Do you think creative people have a tougher time in a relationship than, and I'm not saying people that have a nine to five aren't creative. Oh yeah, I know but what you're but people that choose creativity as their as their vocation as well as their passion sort of thing. Yeah, we why? do. Why do you think that is? Because to be an artist of whatever type, whether you're a painter, or a, a musician, or whatever, you know, rapper or whatever, to be that, you have to really, really dedicate yourself to that to be good at it. Because there's competition. And you know, when you first start out, oh, I, I, I'm, there's no competition for me. Yeah, yeah, there is. Because in this world, and being a professional out here, you have to be really, really into what you do. Now, I'm gonna tell you something personally. I used to smoke a lot of weed and get high back, way back years ago. And I had a buddy of mine who was actually the guy selling me the weed back home, pull me aside, and I'm, in, I'm at his place, beautiful, beautiful house, you know, he pulls me, we got all the buddies sitting around, you know, smoking weed, because I used to love smoking weed. Now, don't get me wrong, I loved it. But he pulled me aside, and he said, come here, I want to talk to you. So all the guys sitting there say, oh, he's going to take him to the good stuff, the good stash, <laughs> you know, another room. He got me another room, he says, you know what? He said, me and you've been friends since the fifth grade. He said, you just, you leaving Chicago, you going to Hollywood. He said, you can't be getting high like this out there. Right. He said, the competition is heavy. You're gonna be going up against the major people for stuff. He said, you gotta focus more. You gotta get out of this. And that stuck to me. That stuck to me, I'm like, wow. And he says, I don't have to sell you none of this stuff. I got customers all over buying my weed and whatever. He said, I don't have to do that with you. Me and you are like best friends, like brothers. He said, you gotta think in terms of, you know, sacrificing something to get where you wanna go. I'm like, wow. So shortly after that, I quit smoking weed. It's been over 20 some years now. Wow. You know, and I smoked so much that people were like, you quit? I'm like, yeah. Because I had to say, you know what, he was right. And once I stopped doing that, things started really falling into place. My focus and my concentration got stronger. And it's not because, okay, my mind wasn't cloudy from weed, because I mean, smoking weed was fun to me, you know. And, and, but it, it became a point where, okay, it's a, it's a thing of discipline. So getting back to what you were saying, it's all, about, it's all about being who you are and being honest with yourself about who you are and not let anybody sidetrack you. You can't be, you can't be what a wife or a, a, a girlfriend or if you're a woman or whatever or a guy with a boyfriend or whatever, you can't let somebody take you away from who you are and what you want to be. Because being an artist is not a job, it's a calling, it's a life. We all artistic, you're artistic, we all are artists. This is a life for us. 
and you have to explain to people. And see, nine to five people, they, they have a tendency to see things in the sense of a, a job. Okay, yeah, well, we get jobs. I mean, I just did a job, and I got a couple coming up in the business, but it's my life. It's not like, okay, I'm, I'm going to cut it off, you know. Yeah, I, I, I cut it off a lot of times when I get home because I'm watching the, the Lakers or somebody or, you know, watching something on TV or something or sitting around, you know, doing something or, or reading a book or something. Yeah, you have to unwind and relax and get away from stuff at times. But you have to know who you are. You have to know who you are and you have to say, okay, this is who I am. You got to accept me for who I am or I got to go. And that happened to me a couple of times, you know, where they say, well, okay, this is not it for me. I'm like, hey. Now the first one probably still hates me when I was real young. The last one, we became friends. And we talk all the time, you know, and she's in Chicago. She <laughs> makes a couple of hundred, three or 400,000 a year, got a beautiful house in Chicago, got a Mercedes and all that, and driving around, and she's very attractive, and she's the businesswoman. I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm proud of you. You know, and, I, and I, most of my family and friends uh, that I grew up with are 95 people. So I don't have any problem with that. I just know who I am, and I know what's best for me because, like I say, I got fired from every real, real nine to five job I've ever had. I got fired from my first job was a paper boy. They fired me. <laughs> Why'd they fire you? Oh, because I wanted to play baseball. All my friends were playing baseball and I'm out with a damn wagon, dropping, throwing papers up on the porch. And all my friends hitting baseball. I'm like, I'm 12 years old. I'm like, damn. So I ended up saying, okay, I got to figure out a way to not get fired necessarily, but I got to figure out a way to do as little of this job as possible. So there was a Dairy Queen on the end of my route. And I had, and Dairy, it was a like 10 cent or whatever. And I had little buddies in the neighborhood, younger kids would go with me on my route. And I would lay on my wagon and point to the houses for them to run and take the papers. And some of them, so one of my customers called the man at the paper station, my manager. And he came out and he says, hey, what are you doing? And I'll set up like this. And he says, see me at the end of the day. And I knew, you know, when I went back, you know, to the, to the place, I said, oh, man, I'm in some serious trouble. I got fired. So I didn't go home and tell my mom and daddy that I was fired. Naturally, you know, being 12, you're kind of stupid. So what you do is like, okay, I can't tell mom and daddy I got fired. So I would leave the house every day and go up to the school, you know, the little playground in school. And I would sit over on the side at the playground for two, three hours every day, sit there like I was on my route. And finally, one day it rained. It was raining cats and dogs. I mean, it was, just, it was raining. And so I was like, oh, oh. So I was leaving out, and my dad said, oh, you can't go out there in the rain. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to help you do your route today. I was like, uh, uh, what? And, you know, I was always in trouble for something. So my father says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. You are going to do your route. I'm like, uh, he says, what happened? So I had to let him know I got fired. He said, you got fired? He said, when? I said, three weeks ago. My mama says, three <laughs> weeks ago? <laughs> they said, what are you, where were you going when you leave the house every day? I said, um, I was going up to the school up there with my little school. I was going up there sitting on the playground. They looked at me like, you have to be out of your mind. <laughs> so that's what 
That's what I would do. I mean, you know, so I mean, I'm telling you, and that started a long, long life of getting fired from every job. I mean, every regular job. They fired me from NRG, the job I was doing the movie pass. They fired me. We were talking about nine to five jobs, and um, I wanted to go to something that I've heard other people talk about and I've also experienced in the past, and that is you take the job and they know you do other things outside <laughs> of there, and they know that, okay, that's fine, and especially in LA, most people aren't just that job. But then they start to get weird with you Co-workers start to get weird, right? And now we have social media, and they can kind of like see, oh, oh, I see, and it starts to change on you. And that's when I've seen people get pushed out the door, or they start to make you sign things that they're not making other employees sign, like you won't use your phone during, and you don't. But you start to see that the the parameters are different for you for some reason. I don't know if you've experienced that. I've heard that from other people. Well, <clears throat> let me say this. I didn't experience that because I was way gone by the time that those kind of things started happening. But I know people that did experience that. And they would come to me, the person that had never experienced that because who had been long gone. And I would tell them, i say, well, that's telling you it's time to go mm. without them having to tell you that. See, when, when, when stuff like that starts happening to somebody, that's an artist that's working nine to five. And don't, don't get me wrong, you have to be able to sustain yourself and to survive. So if you need that, work the job. And you know, people say, well, yeah, should I quit my job? I say, only if you can sustain yourself without that job. I say, otherwise you need that job. Because see, to do what we do as an artist, this is not the day and age of like, three, four hundred years ago when, you know, somebody would be starving, you know, in a little hamlet somewhere in England or somewhere, you know, you know, them days are over. You got to be able to sustain yourself. If you out here on the street and you don't have a place to stay, you're not an artist at that point. You out here fighting for your life. So if you have a job, stay there. But you got to try to find a job that's going to allow you to pursue your craft. And those are real hard to find. Like I mentioned the Nielsen thing. The Nielsen thing was cool in that sense because if you had something to do, you would go do your audition or the job or whatever or might not show up that day. As long as you got those passes out or whatever, you know, they didn't have a problem with that. So you gotta pretty much find a job like that. That's why a lot of artists and actors and people are uh, waiters and servers and all kinds of stuff like that. Because those are the kind of jobs that people are understanding of. And those are what I call romantic jobs for actors. And those are the few jobs that industry higher-ups have no problem with an actor being or doing. Because when I say romantic, I mean in the sense that all of the top people or whatever at one point or another were waiting tables. See, it's, or a valet, you know, those are the kind of jobs that top people see a young aspiring actor doing like, oh, okay. They remember their experience at that. They say, oh, wow, he's young. Boy, he's gonna really grow and oh, that's nice. But they less, but the industry people are less patient with people working in corporate America or behind a desk somewhere. Mm -hmm. they, industry people are less patient with that because they know the difficulty of getting out of those jobs. And see those jobs, you know, they always start somebody off uh, from what my friends have told me, they always start somebody off, oh, sure, you can take off. <laughs> you got an audition? Go ahead. After a few auditions, 
they started they start coming down on them like, mm-hmm. well, do you really uh, do you really have to go, or we really need you here to do this or that? Then that affects the actor with their agents and whatnot. Then you know they have to say, well, I can't make it because I have a meeting. That's when the agents and people say, okay, what are you gonna do? I can't be doing my job here, submitting you, speaking up for you to get in and say, hey, she's really good, or he, he's tops, he's, you need to see him. And you can't make it when I set the audition up, see? So it starts working like that. It starts working like that. So it's, it, it becomes a point where if an actor or a singer or whatever you are in the industry, if you're really, really serious about doing this in this business, you got to eventually say, okay, I got to leave that. Yeah. And if it means like if you're making 40, 50, 60,000, whatever, uh, on a on 100,000, whatever, on a corporate job, and you really, really aspire to be in this business, you might have to leave that job and go get you a job making $12 an hour to be able to do that. And that takes a hell of a lot to do because, I mean, if you're married or have children or something, it becomes difficult because once you have children or something like that, and, I, and it doesn't matter to me whether you're in the arts or whatever, to me, if you have children, they come first. The business and all that comes after that. No matter how much I love acting or whatever, if I got a bunch of kids or I got a child, that child comes first. And that's the way it should be with anybody. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a real tough thing to do. It's a tough nut to crack. And you have to just finally just be real with yourself. Like I was saying earlier, you can't be with somebody that's not going to let you be you. This is, this is the thing that's hard about this job we do. And that we're not even talking about the actual rejection, <laughs> which is 99.9% of it, you know, getting rejected. And how people, you know, I've had friends that were much more talented than me that had to lead the business because they couldn't handle the rejection. And I'm like, wow. And when I first got in it, I, I had a little trouble at first. And then I had, a, I had somebody in the business, my mentor who passed away years ago, he told me, he says, you better get over that. He said, because you're going to get rejected a hell of a lot more than you're going to get accepted. He says, so now, I'm like, wow, is that how it is? He said, yeah. <laughs> and I've learned that's how it is. I mean, you know, we all, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, well, I've mastered that. I don't, I can handle rejection. <laughs> no, it gets you at times because you're human. I mean, every, you're real. You know, you're a human being, and sometimes it hits you. Sometimes it hits you not on just the fact that, damn, that job was going to pay me a lot of money. Other times it hits you on, wow, I thought I was really good, and that's, that's the part I want to play, and not even considering any money. It's just the fact that your, your, your artistic thing was like, man, I could really get into that role. That's a challenging role. That would be really good for me to do that. And you don't get it. So it, it hits you in a lot of ways. So, so you, you just got to eventually, and it's a theme I keep going back to, you got to be true to yourself. You got to be true to yourself. You got to be true to yourself not only as far as a job, you got to be true to yourself as far as can I handle what I'm doing? Can I handle this? Can I handle the fact that I'm going to not have a lot of money at certain points or I'm not going to get a job, I'm going to be depressed about shit? Can I handle this? And you have to just finally say, okay, yes, I can, or no, I can't. And all these friends I had that left the business and whatnot, when I see them or 
I go home, you know, for the holidays or I, or Facebook or they some we stay in touch. We'll talk. I don't I don't hold anything against them as far as them not being an actor. You're not an actor anymore, so I can't relate to you. No, these are friends. These are people that I love and care for. And I tell people, I say, hey. And what I always do is, most of my friends that have to leave the business out of here, most of them go home and don't have any money and can't really get home. I provide everybody a way to get home. I've sent many friends home. Not on a Greyhound, because I wouldn't do that to them. <laughs> Because if you're coming from L.A. to Chicago or Detroit or New York, that's a hell of a long ride. <laughs> that would make you want to kill yourself. So I fly them home. I mean, I've sent people home one-way tickets, and I have people say, you always sending somebody home. I say, I do that. Because if they broke or whatever and they can't get out of here and they need to go, I help them. I had a friend who left. She drove. She drove. I, I said, are you going to make it in that car? She said, I'm going to make it. <laughs> and she said, well, I'm going to need about $200. I said, okay. I gave her $200. And other people said, you gave her $200? I said, yeah. She got to go home. She like Dorothy. She got to go home. She clicking them heels to get the hell out of there. She got to go home. Go. I'm going to help you get out of here. Because that's what you have to do. And people thank me. And I said, oh, man. I said, I would hope you would do it for me if that were the case. I send people home. I mean, I'm sending two or three people home a year. You have to realize who you are and what you can do. And, and see, me, I know there's nothing else I can do. So I have no, I burn all, I, I purposely burn all my bridges leaving Detroit. Do you think most people go home because of the rejection or they have very strong pulls from friends and family and it's comfort, it's safe, oh, they yeah. miss them? And it's, it's not always that way here, especially if you're working a little survival job in the gig industry. It's not, it's not that. It, it, it's all of that. It's, it's not, not just the fact that you can't do your, your acting or whatever. It's, it's all of those factors. It's all of that. I mean, that's why, that's why I say it's, this, is, this is a calling to me. This is a calling to be this. See, when, you, when it's a calling... There's nothing that can take you away from it. I mean, you know, you get sick or whatever. Like my mother fell and hurt herself. Now, if I had to go, and I went home for a couple of weeks to tend to my mother, if I had to go home to take care of my mother, I would do that. Because, see, family comes first. You know, if I had to say, okay, I'm going to have to go home for a while, I would do that. See, so it's not like, no, no, no. If it's, a, if it's an emergency situation, that always, to me, takes precedence over this. Because you can't, I couldn't be happy or really concentrate knowing that my mama or somebody needs me and they're helpless. I couldn't, you know, you can't, you can't function. So, I mean, I would do that. But if it's about the fact that, you know, the pool, like I dated a girl that was here from Chicago and we went to see a movie in, uh, in, at the Sherman Oaks Galleria. And when we left the movie, she got a call from her, um, from her mother, and they were having a cookout in the backyard or something. So this was like a, we went to see her like an early matinee, you know, around 12 or something like that. So uh, after the movie was over, it was around 2 o'clock or whatever, back in Chicago it was 4 o'clock, and it was on, a, I think it was Saturday or something. And her mother called and said, oh, 
Your cousin such and such is here. Oh, we got barbecue. We got potato salad. We got all of this stuff. Oh, everybody asking about you. And we were walking, going to, you know, you, we walk into the car. You know, you've been in the gallery, right? Mm -hmm. oh, so yeah. we walk into the car underground, and she stopped dead in her tracks and started talking. And then all of a sudden, she said, okay, I'll call you back, Ma. I'll call you back. She hung up on the phone and blah, start, oh. broke down, started crying. So naturally, people <laughs> walking past said, what did you do to her? I said, I haven't done nothing. What? And people looking at me like, yeah, did you hit her? Did you? I'm like, no, I'm just standing here. She started crying and said, I want to go home. Mm. And we got in the car and she cried and cried. We didn't, even, we didn't even take off. We just sat there in the car and she said, what should I do? I said, you should go home. She said, really? I said, you should go home. I said, you, you, you need to go home because you're feeling that. She said, but I don't, I, I said, don't worry about me or your agents and all these people. You got to do what's best for you. If it means being in this business, be in this business. If it means going home, go home. She went home, married her old sweetheart, oh. had a kid, beautiful little girl, and he ran off and left her. But that's oh, another story. God, <laughs> that's life, you know. You know, and we talk all the time, you know. When she says, "Oh, yeah," you know, I said, "Well, now, is he taking care of his responsibility? Is he giving you?" They got divorced. I say, "Are you getting your alimony?" And she said, "Oh, yeah. Oh, oh." I said, "Oh, well, hey, you don't. Hey, okay." But but it's like you have to you have to realize who you are and what you can do, and and see, me. I know there's nothing else I can do. So I have no, I burnt all, I, I purposely burnt all my bridges leaving Detroit. Cause the last real job I had in Detroit, you know, while I was still studying my stuff, I quit on them and actually they had to terminate me because I moved, I went to Chicago and wouldn't come back. I took a leave of absence. I was a certified social worker for the state of Michigan. Oh, wow. I didn't go back. so. My boss had to, I had to come back and I went to the job and she's crying while she's writing the termination papers. All the people in this in, <laughs> and I'm hugging them and I'm like, it's gonna be all right. I'm the one that got fired. <laughs> but they were like, I said, that's okay. They said, I, I was hugging and consoling them and they had to fire me. And they didn't want to. I said, no, no, no. They said, you could have taken a long-term leave. I said, no. I said, I needed to burn this bridge. I can't go back over this bridge. There's alligators in that moat down there, and <laughs> if I try to cut through the water, they're going to chew me up. I can't go over this bridge. I burnt that bridge down. See, I had to burn them down because I said, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to do. And people in this industry, as you know, we driven. We driven. Now, I don't, I don't put everything into this. I mean, when I, like I say, when I get home, I mean, I put everything into this when I'm working, auditioning or whatever and all that. When I get home, I say, okay, I'm putting that aside. I've learned that over the years. Okay, I got to put that to the side. So I watch football, basketball. I, I do, do all kind of other stuff other than the business. You know, I don't get high, so I can't do like a lot of my friends that smoke weed. <sighs> oh, yeah, I don't do that anymore. So I have to just do other stuff, but you have to get away from it other, sometimes, you know. And you have to just do that. But like, 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 like we were saying, there's always going to be a pull of some type. There's always going to be a pull. 
And I mean, even when I got into business, I had so much, I had so many people calling me crazy when I first got in it because they didn't understand what I was doing because they said, oh, well, he's a flake anyway. Yeah, you know, he's, you know. I had a girl that, you know, I knew, I was at a party and she found out I was doing, aspiring for this early. And she had gone out and went to New York with the Alvin Ailey Dance Company, you know, and whatnot. And she didn't make it. So oh. I was at a party and I'm sitting at a table with her and her, her boyfriend, you know. And she says, you're gonna try to do what? She said, oh, you'll never make it because I couldn't make it. So if I couldn't make it, I know you can't. And I was like sitting there like, okay. And I had people doing me like that. Then I would have, I would meet women, you know, you know, I would try to date them or whatever. And they would say, oh, well, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm, I'm an actor. They said, oh, you are? Well, what have I seen you in? Or have you, what have you done, you know? And then if I'm, if I'm saying, well, I, I really haven't done much, then now, you know, it's like, well, he's a loser. <laughs> they looked at me and, and I had that, that L on my forehead, you know, <laughs> for them which is the loser, you know, and I actually had women whispering, oh, he's a bum, he's a loser. I mean, I had all kind of stuff. I'm like, okay, all right. And, um, and as the years went on and I started doing stuff, um, I would get few and far questions like that. Now I don't get that anymore. And if I ever get any of those kind of questions, somebody say, well, what have you done? Or what, what can I see you in? I can give them a list. I say, oh, um, I've, I was a recurring character on Parks and Rec. I was a police chief. Uh, I, I got a commercial right now running for Liberty Mutual that's running every two seconds. I can't go anywhere without people not recognizing me, which is, believe me, the airport, everybody's, Liberty, Liberty Mutual. <laughs> got that like crazy. I'm like, okay. So what I say, and I get, like I say, very few questions like that because it's been 30 years. I mean, 30 years. And I, you know, I used to have people say, well, why don't you use your degree? I mean, <laughs> you went to college. And I'll say, well, I've been, I went to school for like, what, uh, 17 years? You started, what, five, I guess? So I said, and I went all until I was like 21, 22. You know, I, I was a year behind because I played sports and I had to drop classes because I was always traveling, you know, so. I was, I was like a, I was like a five-year college graduate and not a four-year, you know, so that's my scarlet letter, you know, like, oh, he came out in five instead of four, oh! But you know, uh, it's like 17 years of school. I said, okay, I went through that life for 17 years. I've been doing this 30, so uh, you, they said, oh, I said, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm out of that stuff. But uh, no, I, I, you know, it's like, now, now I don't have that problem with women problem I got now is I got women trying to take my money. Okay, that's a whole nother yeah. subject. That's another subject altogether, you know. I mean, try to get this money because they know I got some money. See, so, now somebody calling me here. Oh, okay. And, and just keep the camera yeah, rolling because okay. I'm right. gonna see who this is. I knew it was her. You said something that triggered my memory of two different interviews I saw with artists and both those artists came from a small town and they said where they came from they had very supportive like a, a, a very supportive network however it was never okay to try to rise above the group <laughs> because if you did then they said oh you think you're better than us so 
Can you talk about that? Because I think it's a very real part of people's upbringing or, or their, they, they, they have a great support system, but there is an unspoken or maybe spoken thing where, oh, you don't want to act like you're too better than us or smarter than us or who do you think you are to do this over us and have just the normal life that we have back here in our small town. Okay, let me say this. I don't get that because most of the people that are close to me, that are friends from home or whatever, they know what I've gone through and the struggles I've had. And it's kind of funny that, and I'm being serious, they, um, if whatever resentment they might have for me, they don't bring it to me because they know what I've been through. I mean, I literally, I literally was on foot for a number of years where my car, I had old beat up cars and whatnot because my music lessons, my voice lessons, I would study my first, well, I had a teacher before the man I got. She had me come once a week and, and I couldn't really sustain what she was teaching me, you know, as far as my vocal training. And when I got with Mr. Harris, he said, let me tell you something, you're gonna have to come at least two to three times a week. He says, because I got to build this voice up. I got to build your, this whole thing up. So I said, well, wasn't I supposed to be singing from the mask and using my diaphragm? He says, yeah. He said, but it still got to come through your throat. <laughs> so we got to build that up. He says, and um, I want you to come check me out. He's a singer himself and check some of my people out at this concert we give him. And I went and I was like, wow. So he said, it's not cheap. So you got to make up your mind as far as how much you want to spend and how much you really want to do this. So it became a point where I was catching buses and, and, and standing at the bus stops and sub-zero and freezing like this, you know. It, it, and my friends and people that were close to me knew this and saw me, saw me. And my first fiance, or whatever you want to call her, my, my teacher lived not far from her. And I was standing at a bus stop in, you know, the bus stall. And I, I saw her car, it was a, <laughs> it was like a Kentucky Fried, she loved chicken. It was a Kentucky Fried Chicken behind where I was at. I'm standing here on the street in the bus stall like this, and there was a Kentucky Fried Chicken behind. And I saw her car, I sat there and saw her car go through the drive-thru at the Kentucky Fried Chicken. And it comes out on the side where I am. It goes in, it goes in this way and it goes around, right? And it comes out this way on this side of me. And I'm standing here like this. And I literally know, knew that she and her sister or somebody in the car were like looking at me. And I didn't look over because it was a point where I was like, okay, this is who I am, and this is what I got to do. And they drove off. That was that was that was that was a hard thing for me to deal with. That was a hard thing for me to deal with. But I said, okay, you know, this is what I have to deal with. And and so people that I said that were close to me, my parents and sisters and good friends, I never got them from them because they knew, and they still know what I'm going through. So, 
if nothing else, they say, man, wow. I have people that are really impressed with the fact that I've been doing this this long and well, I've been fired a couple of times in this too, but, <laughs> but you always go to the next job. But, but, but they, they, they've been impressed with the fact that I've done this this long and I make a nice living, believe me. And people I run into I haven't seen in years say, wow, you're doing that, that's hard, isn't it? I say, well, look at me, does it look like I lost any meals? <laughs> they say, yeah, you have put on a little weight. I said, yeah. I said, you don't put on weight from not eating. <laughs> you put on weight from eating. I said, so I'm doing pretty good, you know. And, and I don't say this to anybody or any of them, but over the last 10 whatever years, I've made more money per, per year than they've all made. I mean, a lot more. But I don't carry myself like that. And I don't, I, and maybe one reason why they don't have a real problem with me is because I don't carry myself pompous or anything. Anybody that sees me that I knew coming up from school or I run into somewhere or whatever, they say, you still the same. I said, yeah, because I'm secure in who I am and I don't have to pretend to be something or I don't have to put on airs because this is just what I do. I said, this is my life, this is my, my job, okay? This is what I do, so I don't feel it's any more important or any more special than what you do. And, and I treat people like that. I'm like, oh, I'm happy. My niece wanted to get into this. And she's like, I don't, I said, look, just cause I'm in this, and you like what I'm doing. If this is not for you, do what do what you do and do you. She's like, really? I said, come on now. You my niece. I love you. You like my little child. I'm mm-mm. Do you? I said, I don't want to see you suffer in this. She got a regular job doing quite well. I'm like, I'm I, do you. <laughs> I don't I don't care what you do as long as you do you and you happy doing you, then you're a success. See, you, 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 people say, well, I, I don't feel successful at what, why? You doing you. You, you, you got a job, you got a house, you got this, you got whatever. You happy in what you do, you look well, you doing well. That's success. It doesn't matter how much money you making. It's what you do that makes you happy and, and what you are, are good at doing and you doing it. You know, it's just what it is. You have to be you. I keep stressing that over and over. You have to do you. You can't be something that somebody else wants you to be. It'll never work. You end up wanting to damn, shoot them or whatever, or jump off the damn top of the building or something. I had a friend do that, by the way. And, that, and uh, but, but you, you, gotta, you gotta be you. And, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't let people trip on me about, you know, the fact that, you know, I'm better, because I don't come off like that. I don't come off like that with anybody. I give people advice on the business. I help people. I'm not gonna give them $1,000. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, now I've given money to my family more, much more than that because that's my family. I've given some friends, you know, stuff like that but just not a random woman that, you know, got on a nice outfit and got on high <laughs> heels and, you know, look good. I'm like, come on. I mean, 
I've been with good-looking women my whole life. I've always, even when I was five, in the first grade, I thought I was suave and debonair when I had my lunch pail with Roy Rogers, you know, sitting on it. I'm like, yeah, that's the Roy Rogers lunch pail, you know? I mean, I've always <laughs> been with beautiful women, you know? That's just me, you know? <laughs> and not, I'm not so beautiful, you know? But, but it's like, it's just the way it is, you know? So I don't let that trip, I don't let that stuff get to me, you know? You said you were robbed and it changed you? Oh yeah, I was robbed a couple of times. I was robbed, um, the first time I was robbed, I was robbed, uh, I was doing a, um, I was in, re I was doing a play on the east side of Detroit, which is crazy. It's much better now, but uh, the theater was on the east side of Detroit and my car was out, of course, so I had to catch two buses to get home. And I was standing at the bus stop uh, waiting for the bus, which it's not like here or somewhere like a subway train running every two minutes. In Detroit, it's like, I told you, it's like Mad Max in the Thunderdome. You out there like, you know. So I was waiting for the bus, and I, it was kind of cold, and I was like this, you know. And, and I felt somebody, and I kind of heard somebody coming from this side, and I kind of said, don't look over. I'm like, uh-oh. He stuck something in my side. And it wasn't a finger because it felt like steel. He said, okay, uh, give me your money. I said, okay, all right, but I don't really have no money. He said, what are you talking about you don't have no money? I said, I don't have any money. I got some little change and I got a bus ticket. That's all I got. He said, what you doing over here then? I said, I'm rehearsing a play, I'm an actor, and I'm rehearsing a show. Now he engaged me that long. And he said, well, give me what you got. I think I had like 32 cents or something. He said, that all you got? I said, yeah. I said, don't shoot me. I said, I'm just trying to make it. Wow. And um, he said, all right, all right. So then he said, just don't, don't, uh, don't move. I said, I'm not, I'm not going to do nothing. And he started walking off and I kind of saw him and I said, don't you want the bus ticket? And he looked at me and I saw him and I looked right at him at that point. He says, no, fool, how you going to get home? Wow. And that was like, <sighs> so really what I saw after that and I felt what that whole situation was, that was somebody that lived around there that probably had seen me before. Because people don't just randomly walk up to somebody. And the funny thing is, after that, I didn't tell anybody. Oh, I wasn't about to tell my mom and them. Oh, hell no. And I was going with a little girl at the time. I wasn't going to tell her. So I was like, no. I just didn't ever say nothing. But the first thing somebody would say is, you can't go back over there. I'm like, well, no, no. This is a good part in this show. Okay. And I knew I was hooked then. I'm like, I'm hooked. Nobody ever bothered me after that. Because this guy probably told all of them around there, he ain't got no money. He an actor over here at this place. <laughs> Leave him alone. Mm. Nobody ever bothered me. Mm. That really woke me up to like, wow, this is what I really want. I'm this dedicated. But it's like when my friends say, if they're going to shoot you, that was that kind of situation where it's like, okay, you either do this or you get shot. So I'm like, I'm not going to stop coming over here. 
Now, somebody else might rob me, and I hope they have a few more coins in my pocket, but I was broke. I mean, I was literally broke. So I was like, I had like 32 cents or something in the bus ticket. Because, you know, we had bus tickets. You get a strip of bus tickets, and, you know, you get a transfer when you get on the bus. And I had a, got the transfer with the bus ticket. And, and second time I got robbed was in a McDonald's. I was living, uh, I wasn't doing a show at the time, but I was living on the other side of town and my dad was sick in the hospital and my mother, and I actually had my car at that point, and my mother was at the hospital all day. She said, well, you know what, um, I, I just don't feel good, you know, being at the house by myself. Can you come over here and spend the night at the house? I said, oh, of course. I had my own apartment. I said, oh, yeah. So she said, well, look, I've been at the hospital all day. I don't have no food. I haven't cooked. Maybe you ought to stop at McDonald's or something and get you something. I said, oh, okay. And I stopped at the McDonald's. I went through the drive-thru. It was kind of late at night. And I ordered my food, and the girl said, um, well, can you uh, pull over because, you know, we're cooking and bringing it out to you. I said, okay. So I'm sitting in the car, and it's cold. And I'm running my gas. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. So I said, well, I'm going to go inside. So I came inside, and she looked. I said, I'm the guy you told to pull over. She said, oh, okay. So... They said, we haven't even got it ready yet. So, so I'm standing at the counter, and it was like four of us, four guys at the counter, you know, getting our food. And the little boy in front of me, you know, the little McDonald's boy, he's like looking at me, and all of a sudden, he looks over like this, and he starts doing this. And I'm looking at him like, what the look you got? I'm looking at him like, what? He said, and I look over, guy got a sawed-off shotgun pointed right at my head. And he's telling me, raise your hands, motherfucker. My hands up. And these guys proceeded to rob the McDonald's. And what he did was, it was two. One guy came in on the other side, the other door, the backup guy. And he uses me as a shield. And he's got the gun under my arm. I like my arms up. He puts the gun under here. And he's got the gun right in the face of that little boy. Oh, wow. And he says, empty the register. And the little boy, naturally, uh, he said, empty the register. So the manager, a female at this time, she's down here, and the guy with the salt off, he says, okay, empty all the registers. She empties all the registers except mine. And then he says, okay, open the safe. Hmm. And she says, well, I can't, I don't have a combination. It's a drop box. She said, no, you can open the safe. She says, I can't open it. They come every night and get the money. The security come every night and get the money. I can't open it. He said, you lying. He says, get down on the ground, bitch. She gets down on the ground on the floor of the other place and he leans over the counter and he cocks the gun and he puts it on the side of his. He says, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to ask you one last time. Open the safe. So she's like this and she's like, ah, she starts crying. Please don't kill me. I can't open the safe. I got a baby at home. Please, it's just me and my baby. Please, please. And I'm like this and I'm just looking and I'm just like, oh my God. And I got the guy behind me with the little boy like this and I'm like this and I'm like, oh, and I'm like this. And all of a sudden, the guy uncocks the gun. And the next thing on my mind is, thank God. They're professionals. Professionals don't want to shoot anybody. See, I found that out from being in Detroit around the hood. Professionals don't want to shoot anybody. 
They want to get in and get out. So he says, okay, we're finished getting the money. She jumps up. She gets the money. She gets down to my register, little boy. This McDonald's money. And we say, give him the money. Give him the money. We yelling and screaming. And they say, shut up. We didn't shut up. Give him the money. Give him the money. It was just pandemonium. So this manager, she knocks him out the way, goes in his register and get the money and put it in one of the big McDonald's bags and hand it to the guy. So the first guy out of the place is the guy that had the pistol under my arm. The last guy out, he says, anybody trying anything, I'm gonna come back and kill everybody. He comes down the line of us. They didn't even rob us. He comes down the line of us and takes the, 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 the gun across all our backs, the small of my back. I had this gun go down the small of my back, and I'm telling you, my life flashed before my eyes. When people say, oh, my life flashed, I went from being a baby shitting in my pants, in my diaper, all the way up to that. It was just like that. I'm like, oh. And I'm like, oh, God, oh, 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 like this. And he left out. When he left out, they took off running. I looked, they took off running. All of the customers jumped over the counter and we was all behind the thing. By this time, the cops came in because they, they pushed the silent alarm. And I got to the house and my mother said, oh. She said, you didn't get your food? I'm like, no, I didn't get it. So she says, uh, what's wrong? I said, we got stuck up at McDonald's. My mother's like, oh, okay. My mother got mad at me when I said, I have to remember what that felt like because one day I'm gonna have to act and have to recreate that experience. My mother got mad at me. <laughs> that was the end of that story, but that's what happened. My mother said, what? You in that damn acting? And that's when I really finally realized this is it. This is where I'm supposed to be. That was the first experience of me getting robbed with the guy with the gun. Take my little 32 cent. The second one was that. And that's when I said, I'm in all the way. Because all I'm thinking about at one point during the robbery is like, I have, this, this is weird. I, got to, I have to remember this. I just did a thing on um, Shooter, the TV show Shooter, where I played a bank guard. And I get shot in the, in the episode. And they put a squid pack on me and everything. They lied to me. Oh, it's not gonna hurt. It's gonna be just a little teeny weeny pinch. They were lying their ass off. That squib hurt. And I get shot in the scene. And I fall over, but I but but even though I'm like and, and I, I'm belligerent to the guy, he says, All right, old man, because it's flashback from the early 70s or whatever. And and it's a flashback scene. So I said, Well, I didn't I didn't I didn't lay down. He said, get on the ground. I said, my back, I got a bad hip and a bad back. I can't get down there. He said, I told you to get on the ground. I said, I can't do it. If I didn't lay down in Korea, I'm not laying down now. So he shoots me. But at that point, I'm recalling a lot of that experience of that. And we did one take and the director says, that was so real. And we broke for lunch and he says, that was, wow. I looked at it, that was, that was real. I said, yeah. I said, and I told him the story at McDonald's. He says, oh, wow. what? I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, I've been stuck up a couple of times, man. I've been shot at before, wow. all kind of stuff. It's like Detroit, a rite of passage. It's like, you know, bar mitzvah is like, get shot, get stabbed. I've been stabbed. Yeah, I got stabbed at a girl's prison. Yeah, I worked at one of those. Oh, I was gonna say, what were you doing there? I was, uh, I was working as, um, that was my last job. Yeah, that was my last job before I finally was like, I'm done. And I left, I ran out of Detroit, moved to Chicago. I said, okay. 
I, uh, I, you know, I had a, I had a social work degree. I had a minor in art, and a, my major in school was social work. So after the corporate thing, I was taking these part-time jobs and all kind of little jobs to be able to do my thing in the study. Okay, so my last job, I worked at a place um, out in the suburb of Detroit. It was called a lockup. It was a, it was a place, uh, I don't want to mention their name, but <laughs> uh, it was a Catholic organization. And this is where the rich folk would send their, their kids or their daughters. Oh, she's away at boarding school. No, she locked up. And a lot of those rich girls were girls that would run off, runaways. And uh, we had a situation where I worked the afternoon. I was a, I was a uh, supervisor on the afternoon shift. So when I came, I started at, what, 3.30 or something like that. I came into, came into the job, and I pull up in my car, and I got all of these police cars and fire trucks. I'm like, damn, what happened? So I go inside, and the day girl, day person, she's, ah, the kids, uh, they fired, and the kids are locked up in the day room. I got to go. And she throws the thing, you know, the log, and I got to look, you know, you got to, you know, log in and everything. It's a state kind of job. So she just throws the book. I'm like, oh, she runs out. <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, okay. And, and so the cops are saying, well, you know, they're locked up in the day room, and we're going to go in and bust it down, and we're going to do this. And the fireman says, I got these hydraulic hoses. We're going to hose them. I said, okay, stop. You can't do that. Well, who are you? I said, I'm the manager. I'm the afternoon manager. You can't do that. Well, we can do it. I said, no. I said, I'm the legal guardian, state guardian of these girls. You under my jurisdiction, which is everywhere. State to here too, you can't do it. I said, I'm going to go in and talk to them. So they boarded up, got chairs. I said, let me come in, in the day room, in the rec room. I said, let me come in and talk to you. No, I said, let me come in and talk to you. I'm, I promise, I'm just coming in. I went in there for about 15 minutes, so what's going on? <sighs> well, they fired. I said, well, you know what I was doing? I said, come on now. You know you can't get, I, he, they had to, they called him and they fired him. He was a counselor? He was, he was the night supervisor. See, they had to have somebody there 24 hours a day with him. So he was the one at midnight. All he had to do was just make sure they were okay, and they and they, they locked up. They in they in they're in rooms, two in a room, with these doors this thick. They didn't have bars. They in doors this thick, where it's like you can't shoot through that or nothing. Okay, they locked up. So I talked the girls down, and one of the girls had like a chair leg with the with the look that long screw, a sharp screw. And I talked him down, and when I opened the door, I say, okay, they're coming out. This cop said, get him. He rushed him, and one of the girls thought I'd set him up. She tried to stab me here, and she caught me in the side. Oh. Okay, so she ended up going, I didn't press charges, but they, they, I was forced to press charges. They sent her to women's detention at that point. And I wrote up, and I wrote, a, wrote up, and I got that cop suspended. And the fireman, I got, I got him suspended. And he wasn't happy. I got him suspended. Because like, that was a violation of the state. You can't do that. They were going to hose, you know, the hoses that they put out fires? They were going to put these hoses on those little girls. Do you know the power of those hoses? They're pretty strong, yeah. They, they can, 
They can break bone. They can knock these girls and break and hurt them girls. I'm like, no. Hmm. Well, we got to get them out. I said, I'm gonna get them out of there. <laughs> so they like me, you know. I, you know, because I was an actor and I used to perform stuff and show them stuff and teach them a little acting stuff. So they like me, and I knew that. I said, no, 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 no. So that's what happened on that. But right after that, I said, you know what, brother, you got to go. <laughs> what you, you've been robbed twice. It was, that's when it's like, okay, you got to go. So I said, it's time for me to leave. So I left. Right, a couple of months later, I left and went to Chicago. And, I, and that's when everything, and, I, and my first big commercial was with James Brown, the Godfather Soul. Ow! James Brown! And that was an experience in itself. <laughs> How did you know that you were good at acting? Because I was good as a kid. See, see, when I was like in the early grades, we did, um, we did a school play, uh, uh, the Aladdin and his Magic Lamp. And I was so good that the teacher wanted me to play Aladdin. But I said, I don't want to play Aladdin. I want to play the evil sultan. And I remember, and I mean, I'm in like the third or fourth grade, and she's like, really? I'd never forget that. Because she told my mother when my mother came to the show. She says, he didn't want to, he should have played the lead, but he didn't want that. He wanted to play this part. And I was good. as the yes. Uh, I did all of that stuff. And the people were crazy. And, and the teacher says, your son is something else. And I remember my mother's telling me, she said, you know, when you were in the fifth grade, you read like a 10th grader? And she said, when you got in the 10th grade, you read like a fifth grader. <laughs> That's what my mother always joke about that. I said, oh, you know. But what I'm saying is I knew then and people knew. They were like, wow. I mean, I was singing, you know, and stuff. Um, I was a little boy soprano and I, oh, I got teased terribly by the boys in class. I mean, you know, cause uh, we had to sing that little song uh, from the music man. Uh, and I sang the song. There were bells on the hill, and I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all, till there was you. Did you ever see The Music Man? I think so, yeah. Robert Preston and mm -hmm. Shirley Jones. Mm -hmm. I had a crush on Shirley Jones from Oklahoma. I was like, oh, Shirley Jones. She's so beautiful and sing. So they sang that duet. So I sang that in class with a little girl. And all the boys was just on me because I was a, I had a beautiful little little lightweight little voice, and my teacher was just playing like oh, and she said you ought to be in this business one day, Miss Pyatt. She's a little old lady. You ought to be in show business. I'm like oh, <laughs> I, I mean as a little kid. Yeah. And from then, and then I had the thing where uh, I had to. I wasn't a bad kid, but I was always in shit. You know, I was always doing stuff. It would always scare my folks. So when my mom and daddy would be at work in the summer, I had to stay in the house until my mama got home at, in, in the afternoon. See, my mother was a teacher. So she taught summer school, and summer school let out at like 12, 1 o'clock, you know, because it's not full day, it's half a day. So I would have to stay in the house because I'm like, damn. So, you know, as, as a little kid, you get up early in the morning. So I would be up, and there was two, there was two TV shows that I watched. One was Rita Bell's prize movie, which came on at like eight o'clock in the morning. And Rita Bell was this lady who was an aspiring actress that never made it. And uh, I would watch all of the Hollywood musicals 
the musicals and all of the comedies. She would play those. And then in the afternoon around 12, Bill Kennedy, Bill Kennedy's Showtime. And Bill Kennedy was an actor from Hollywood who never made it. <laughs> and he would play the cowboy pictures and the gangster movies, which I love. So Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney and John Wayne, the cowboy pictures, I saw all of those. So I would watch these for a couple of years like that. So I became pretty much, and I'm like a movie historian now. I've won two game shows, answered movie trivia. And I can tell you almost anything about movies, old movies, I know everything. People are like, wow, <laughs> how do you know this? I say, because I was watching this stuff. So I even knew then that I wanted to be in this business. I knew, I'm like, man, I want to do that, I want to do that. But I never said anything to anybody. So eventually when I got out of school, I played sports all the way through school. When I got out and I went pro and I didn't make it, I got hurt and I'm glad I did because that's crazy. I mean, it's, I've, I've lost a couple of friends who, you know, from that CET thing, you know, when their mind leaves and they, they go crazy from, from tackling and stuff. Oh, uh-huh. I've lost a couple of friends that died. So I'm like, man, I wasn't supposed to make it. And I mean, I was always hurt and crying. Like, oh, I didn't make it. Now I'm like, ooh, thank you, Lord. Because that was crazy. But I knew I was supposed to be doing this. And I just fell into it. Like I said, when I, when I, when I told my, my, my fiance, I said, I'm, 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 I gotta go. And I, you know, she said, well, I gotta go. <laughs> Bye. Then the job. You know, I quit, you know, you know, all the little hustle jobs and all through the years, I got fired from all of them because I would not show up because of the business. You know, my parents were like, oh my God. And when I finally got in a show that they didn't totally disown me, but they just were like really disappointed in me. And I was living on my own and and I was struggling and starving, and they came to see me in a show. And that's when my parents said, wow, you are good. And it was really funny how it was on a Sunday, and all of these people came up to me and literally pushed my parents back because they were all over me. And my mama said, you coming by for dinner, right? I said, yeah, of course, Sunday dinner? I said, yeah. So I went by with a matinee show that Sunday, only one show. And when I got there, my mother was like, I, I, I believe you. My daddy said, yeah. And I used to complain to him all the time about the, the business in Detroit. I'm not getting the audition, I'm not getting this, I'm not getting that, I hate this job. I just got stabbed, you know? He says, why don't you leave? Why don't you go to New York? Or why don't you go to California? That's where your stuff is. He said, they doing a lot in Chicago at that point. He said, why don't you go to one of those places? Stop complaining and leave. And I'm like, I left. And I went to Chicago first and I had a lot of relatives there and I stayed with a couple of my relatives and um, then I met the girl that I was thought I was gonna marry, the other one. And uh, uh, I stayed, my whole thing was to stay in Chicago long enough, I had already got my SAG card. I wanted to get one commercial. They were shooting a lot of TV shows at that point because Chicago was hot, you know, really hot at that point. 
And I said, okay, I want to get one TV show, uh, one commercial, and then I'm going to go to California. I end up staying there almost 15 years, and I did a ton of shows, 30, 40 commercials, all kind of stuff. And what made me leave Chicago, and I was ready, I'm like, I don't know, should I leave or what? I went into uh, my agency one day, and they were doing a voiceover job for Gatorade. <laughs> and when I came in, the receptionist said, he's here. And I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah I'm here. So I, I had three agents in there. They all came out of their office and were standing in the doorway looking like this. They said, yeah, yeah, the specs for the spot is on the wall, you know, telling you we want this and this, you know, telling you what you have to do for the, for the audition. So I looked at the wall and it says, we're looking for a Romine Johnson type. <laughs> we, he has to be this, he has to be funny, he has to be clever, spontaneous, he has to have a great sense of humor, which is, you know, me. And I'm like, huh? And they all like, yeah. And I said, oh no. And that's when I said to myself, I said, it's time to go. They're looking for somebody like me. Wow. But they're not talking about me for the job. Because I had been working for those people. I had done several Gatorade commercials. Gatorade, blah, blah, blah. I mean, radio, all kinds. Of I had done work for them. They had used me to the point where they couldn't use me. They wanted somebody like me, but not me. <laughs> so it was time to go. And my agents knew it's time to go. So I didn't just up abruptly just leave. I said, okay, let me go scout out LA. So I went and I was traveling back and forth for about a year or so. And finally I came out here in 97 and stayed 11 months. And for tax purposes, my, my tax man said, well, you gotta spend at least one month back there to try to claim some stuff. So I went back and then I stayed there until uh, June of uh, 98, and then I moved, uh, stayed June of 98, and I came out back to Chicago. Then in the following year in June of 1999, I just completely moved. So I've been here since, it'll be almost 20 years in June. Oh, uh-huh. And um, that was it, you know. And that's, that's when, um, <laughs> things really got nuts. <laughs> Romine, we interviewed Bill Duke uh, for oh, yeah. the second time. He gave us a wonderful interview both times, and we had um, a video we wanted to play and get your reaction. So okay. Here we go. I think we're, all of us are everything. And people say, well, how can you say that? Uh, I'm a woman with a child. I'm not a murderer. Okay. Suppose somebody just came up and hit your baby in the head with a hammer. <laughs> what would you call your response to that if you pick that hammer up? No one's saying you're a murderer. No one's saying you're anything, but you're everything. Uh -huh. And if you're hired to do a job, the director doesn't hire you to act like that person. The director hires you to become that person. Right. 
And that's something that most people don't understand about acting. Acting is not, I don't, that word is annoying because it means you're pretending. Uh-huh. Acting is not pretending. Acting is becoming. It's surrendering yeah. to the spirit of whatever you're, that character you're describing is. It's a thing called stage fright. That's when you're in the middle. Uh, you've given part of yourself up to be the character, but your ego and your fear and paranoia is watching how you give it up and tries to control the shape of that giving up. Right. But real actors, like the ones that I adore, and the Kate Winslets and the Meryl Streeps and the Denzels when he's really in it and the Sam Jacksons and the Philip Seymour Hoffmans and the Jeffrey Wrights and when those people go there, there's no there's nobody there except that character. And that's admirable. It takes courage. And people don't understand because sometimes you're not in control. You're 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 on a ride. If the trust and the person you trust is the director to say that I ride right, what do you think? Because uh, you don't stand outside and look at your ride. Uh, you ride. And that's what real great actors do. Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of my favorite actors of all time. I think he was brilliant. Oh, yeah. yeah Can someone still right. be great and have stage fright? They can be great and have stage fright. Uh-huh. They can be really good and have stage fright. Right. But to surrender totally to the moment and to totally respond to what the other person that you're acting with is doing, that's a, that takes courage. You're not watching yourself anymore. You're watching the person you're with in the scene. You're not watching how you react to what they do. You're responding like we're talking right now. I'm not trying to be a special anything. I'm just responding to what you're asking me. And that's what acting should be. Uh One of my great acting teachers... When I was a very young actor, when I asked a similar question, he said, I'm going to make it real simple for you. He said, it's like falling into darkness backward. Imagine just falling into darkness backward. No control of your landing. That's right. If you're going to be caught or not, just fall. Everybody said, well, well, suppose there's a rock back there, or suppose there's a... You get your head. Um, I don't know, no pillows, and just hard floor. The writer is saying to you, I want you 
to fall into darkness backward. I've given you all the description, the director and I, of who the character is. We've had rehearsals and discussions about who this human being is. I do not want you to describe them to me. I want you to become them by falling into darkness backward. Right. Can you do that? <laughs> oh, I agree with him. I would take it a step further on one of them when he says becoming instead of instead of acting uh, you become the person. I mean, yeah, it's just a, a, a kind of wordplay, but I would say instead of becoming you be the person. You be what you are. <clears throat> I've studied um I think I've studied every major technique, Stanislavski, the method, because uh, they all come from Stanislav Stanislavski, well, they all come from Stanislavski, every form of, or method, or style. It all originates, the modern acting originates from Stanislavski. And uh, I've studied all of them, and uh, the one I recognize to me that works best for me, I mean, you use bits and pieces of everything, but the one that I, <clears throat> the one technique that I really use more of, or really is Meisner, because Meisner is is you be you are that person, and one thing that they always stressed to us in Meisner when I was studying Meisner was, don't ever say my character, my character wants to do this, or my character is that, or this or that. No, it's I am this, I am that, see, which, which takes you beyond becoming. Because see, to me, when you become, when you're becoming, or you become this character, to me, you still, and he's, he, I, I agree with everything, basically, you, you still outside somewhat of the character, you know, you're still kind of outside, but to be that, the character, then you're inside all the way. And that's part of what he's saying about falling backwards. I mean, you fall, you into it to the point where it's just you and you just let go and trust yourself. That's what he's saying. But um, I agree, he's a hell of an actor and director. Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> and, and it's kind of funny when he mentioned Denzel Washington about when Denzel lets himself, when he goes into it. Uh, sometimes, as great as Denzel Washington is, sometimes I can see he's working. And when he did um, Fences, um, and, and to be honest, to give him, he was directing as well as acting. So he had to come outside of it to, to work with the other people. And especially Viola Davis, who to me is just, <laughs> she's tremendous. Uh, she's, she's like, she's like the newer, <laughs> I used to I hate to say that, but like, she's like the newer Meryl Streep, you know. And there's quite a few. I mean, Kate Blanchett, uh, there's quite a few. And you know, I, I love Daniel Day-Lewis. 
Daniel Day-Lewis to me is the one that becomes, he is more than any other actor to me, as we talked early, he is Hawkeye, you know, he is uh, crazy, uh, what was it, Bill or whatever from Gangs of New York. He is that. He is the oil, oil baron that throws that bowling ball at that boy, you know, and actually <laughs> try to hurt him. Because <laughs> he's so far in that, you know, he, he, he frightens those people. And, and all of those actors like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Paul Dana and all of them, all of them said that after working with him and seeing how he works, that took them to a whole nother level, and especially Leonardo DiCaprio. And he did some really nice stuff when he was a kid, yeah. you know. Basketball Diaries. Yeah, mm -hmm. really nice stuff. Yeah. But after Gangs of New York, he took a step. He took a step up to me. And when he did Revenant, he wasn't, he wasn't acting. He wasn't becoming. He was that character. I mean, for anybody that might not have seen the movie, I'm, <laughs> when, when he goes over the cliff after the, the, the Indian or whatever were chasing him and the big, that big horse falls over and then the horse breaks his neck and dies and he's screwed up. When he, to survive, when he cuts that and guts that horse and then takes his clothes off to make sure he can get that warmth of the horse, he gets inside of that thing. And I mean, I'm like, I mean, I'm sure, you know, and they probably, well, they didn't have a real horse, I don't believe, I don't think. <laughs> but the fact that he was able to convey that and get that into it, and when the bear attacked him, I mean, you can't just act. You can't say, well, okay, I'm gonna act. You have to be that person at that point. He was that guy getting savaged and scraped and beat and just chewed on by that bear. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just was like, wow. And, and he won the Oscar because he was so far gone. It's like uh, last year, um, another one of my favorite actors is Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman, no matter what he does, Gary Oldman is that person. He's not acting or pretending, or he is that person. Even when he plays Commissioner Gordon in the Batman franchise, he, he was Commissioner Gordon. I mean, he's done some brilliant, I mean, and he just did uh, Winston Churchill. I mean, I was just mesmerized. He won an Oscar, <laughs> but I mean, I was completely like, wow completely just mesmerized by him because he was, he, he became Winston Churchill. And I tell you who, I hadn't seen it yet, but this movie Vice with uh, uh, Christian Bale. Saw it. You saw it? Mm -hmm. and, and from what I'm hearing, he was Dick Cheney. Excellent. Mm -hmm. And Dick Cheney, I'm sorry, I mean, whoever's watching this, Dick Cheney is a diabolical evil person. I mean, I mean, you know, hey, I mean, but he became Dick Cheney. In the previews I saw, I saw, um, what did I say? I saw a movie a couple of weeks ago. I, I can't remember what it was, but they showed the preview of Vice. And to let me know in the show, 
just how far in watching the watching the trailer of it at the theater, when it's over, you can tell when somebody really connects. When everybody in the theater just getting ready to watch the movie we're there for says, yeah. you know, when you and you get a you hear that buzz in the in the audience. You know, sometimes you'll, it'll be a laughter on something really silly and funny kind of trailer. You know, they connect. So you laugh. <laughs> but when I saw that, everybody was like, because we saw Dick Cheney. And then, you know, the thing where, you know, he's sitting in the truck and he just, boom, shoots his friend. You know, I mean, whether that happened like that or not, I mean, you know, but it's just, it was just really all the way in. And, and, and I think that's what the whole thing about acting is or being an actor, mm -hmm. and which is what I find so, so great about this. And you can never, ever master this. You never master this. And people say, what do you mean you don't master it? No, you don't ever master this. You always, you always have something to learn. It's not like, it's not like, um, well, got that down. Mm-mm. Because you're only as good as your last performance, and especially so in theater. Theater, theater. theater is the one place where you get instant gratification and instant critique. <laughs> Film, you know, you can do 100 takes or whatever, or they can edit it together, sure. and then... Six months later or whatever, when they release it, then you'll find out or you'll get your critique. But on stage, you get it immediately. So anybody, and I've been there, like all actors, where you do, you do a great performance one night and then it's like the next night, it's like, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I was, they really like me, they love me, you know, I, did, I was tremendous. And the next night, fall flat on your face, which is a lesson to learn, it's like, you have to commit every moment you out there. The performance, the performance is gonna be different. No two performances. I've been in stuff and plays and shows and stuff with people, especially musicals, it's always different. <laughs> but most plays, are, and I've had actors and younger actors and people say, even some older actors say, ah, I didn't do this right. I, it's not like it was last night. No, it's not like that. It's gonna be different, which is the challenge of it and which is, to me is like the blessing and everything of it is the fact that, yeah, I can't master this because I've always been the type coming up where I would get bored with stuff, especially in school. I would get bored with it. By the time I got to college and I went over some of the same, same stuff I had done in high school, I was like, okay, this is college. How many times I'm gonna go over this? I know this, okay. And a lot of that stuff, they wasn't giving me a new perspective on it. They wasn't giving me, oh, this is a new way to do it, which would excite me to the point, of, oh, it's something different? It's all the same. So eventually I'm like, okay. But when I got into this, uh -uh. each time it's different, which thrills to this day, I'm thrilled. In fact, oh, it's, it's different each time. And I gotta make sure that I don't screw it up or if I do, so be it. I gotta use that. You know, when I first got into business, 
if I made a mistake or somebody I knew we were younger actors, you make a mistake, you might show the audience that you would make a mistake because of your reaction to the mistake. <laughs> but when you are that person, when you are that character and you all the way in, you can deal with that because you make mistakes. You make mistakes uh, when we talking. I mean, I've glitched a couple of times here, but that's real. Yeah, it's not like, okay, I gotta go back over that line because I said that wrong. No, no, you have to work through that. It's to the point now, and I try, I mean, hopefully it works, but I try when I make a mistake doing something live that I use it to the point where the audience doesn't know I made a mistake. That's when you really locked in and when you are that character, when it's something that you are and, and you're gonna stumble. I know actors that fall apart after they stumble. Oh, I stumbled over the line. It's like, <laughs> it's like oh, you stumble over lines all day long. You, you stumbling walking in here, you know. You hit your foot on the door or something, you know. You, your elbow hits. It's like you're not just walking in there. I didn't hit anything. That was perfect. No, you make mistakes all over. That's, that's what makes it real. And when you do that and you just continue, I was in a show years ago where I played, um, I played Skeeter the Junkie. Oh, okay, I was gonna say about this, uh, I did a show years ago where I played this character Skeeter the Junkie. And, uh, and my partner in the scene was an undercover cop who I didn't know was an undercover cop. So when I finally realized and he finally lets me know he's a cop, and I've given him the information he wants. He's supposed to throw the little bag of, you know, dope, you know, which I had, yeah, give me the dope when I tell you. He said, all right. He's supposed to just throw it down and I'm supposed to pick it up and <sighs> do that whole thing, you know. And uh, so the guy that played the scene with me, he got into it so, so crazy because he had his family there and everything, you know, he was like all in that he threw the dope <laughs> off the stage. I mean, literally threw it off the stage and he's like, oh! He just looked like this. And I looked and saw it and did the scene. I had to have the dope. So in the audience, he threw it right in the front row by somebody, some lady who's sitting there by her leg. And she's like looking down like this. And the audience, everybody's looking. And everybody's like, and I, and I felt everybody looking like, what am, what am I, what is he gonna do? I calmly stayed in character, kept saying a line and <clears throat> did whatever as the, as the junkie, walked off the stage, went down there by that lady's foot, grabbed the dope, walked back up on the stage and finished the scene. And when we left the stage at the end of that scene, they, they just went crazy the audience, because it was like, what am I going to do? I got to play the scene and this is real. So the, my dope is over there. So I couldn't just <laughs> act like, okay, um, well, the dope is down there. So let me act like in mind that I really have it. No, 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 no. I went down there, walked off that stage and went down and picked that dope up, said my lines, some of them down there and came up there, yeah, I gave you all the news, yeah, I'm gonna get ready, and I put the little thing around my arm, went back up on stage, did that, took my arm, yeah. And then the scene was over, basically, after that. But the audience was like, whoa, because I didn't let it throw me to the point 
where I was like, ah, because I was always, I was locked into the character. Even though I'm locked in, I know that, okay, I got to get this dope. Cause that's what my thing was. That's, that's, that's what I, I had to have in that scene. That's what I had. I had to have it. I got to get this dope. I got to get this dope for me. That was the driving force of me in that scene to get that dope. Cause I, I got to shoot up. I gave him what he wanted. So for me not to go down and get that dope would have been really just It's like, okay, end of the show curtain. I've been in shows where we do, we would do two scenes similar, almost like a flashback in a show. And a guy was in the show who came in and he had been high on some stuff. Hmm. And we had two similar scenes where the guys are sitting around playing cards and the other people backstage had, had different costuming for the two different scenes when they come out. He skipped the first scene of us playing cards and went to the second scene. Oh, wow. And all the actors on stage in the scene with him tried to get him back. We started rewriting to get him back to what he was supposed to say in the first scene. He wouldn't do it. So the people behind, and we out there performing now, I mean, that's when you kind of like, okay, it's hard for me to stay in this now because we got to save this and save him. And he's sitting there looking around like this spaced out. And you could hear all the other actors backstage scrambling to get their costumes. So me and one of the other guys ad lib some stuff. And I kind of casually look over like this and the, the, one of the actors gave me the sign like, okay, we ready. And then we went right to the next scene. Then of course he's high at the end of the night, the director and the stage manager come out. What the hell happened? He says, they messed the scene up. <laughs> and we like, what? He said, you said this. I said, no, you read the second scene. He said, no, 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 no. I said, get the book, get the script. So they got the script. I said, you said this right here. And I said this, he said, yeah. I said, that's the second scene. He's like, uh. and I told him when we left that night, I gave him a ride. I said, they don't know you like I know you. Leave those drugs alone. If you do that again, I'm gonna slap you out there. I said, you can't be coming in here high like that. I mean, I did that one time. I did a show one time where I had smoked some stuff, some weed and perform. And I said, never in my life again will I do that again, not only for me, but for these other actors and mistreat them like that. I said that that was the worst thing. I, I, I was so ashamed of myself. And I didn't really screw nothing up, but I wasn't all in. And that wasn't fair to these other people. That wasn't fair to the audience. That wasn't fair to anybody. And I said, why would I do that? Because I thought I was being cute. Oh, yeah, you know. I know I asked you this before about when did you get, quote, good at acting, but really when did you feel like you were not mastering the craft, but that you were really honing in and what we talked about earlier with the Bill Duke videos, falling back into the abyss? Well, like I said before, you know, you, you never master. You get good or whatever, but you, there's always something to learn. And I always take classes, I always stay in classes and, um, because of, of the fact that this is a work in progress. But what I, what I feel, I think when I felt like I was really connecting, I don't like to say 
I really got good. I used to, I like to say when I really started connecting to, to what I was doing, I think that's when I finally stopped trying to be perfect. See, and it kind of hurt me, that whole thing of perfection hurt me musically. It, it didn't hurt me as much as an actor, and it hasn't hurt me as much as an actor, but it really hurt me musically because I got into a thing as far as singing and musical stuff, trying to be too perfect, trying to make each note sound, whatever. And that gets you in your head. And once you get into your head in anything, especially this, you're in trouble. It's like what Bill Duke was saying about uh, stage fright. That's that, that's that ego and everything while you out, you out here judging yourself on what you're doing. And see, that's the same as getting in, same thing, getting in your head, thinking about, well, I'm, that didn't sound good or that note could have sounded better. Why are you performing? That's not good. See, and, and when, you, when you drop, when you drop that perfection mindset and, 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 and accept the fact that you're not perfect, then, then you free yourself to the point now where you can be the actor or be the character or whatever. You, you free yourself. Then you're able to really have fun and, and let go and explore. You free, you free yourself. Once you free yourself in anything, that's when you get good or great or whatever. The, the, the best actors, like he was saying to everybody, the best actors are the ones that free themselves to just be. Like Meryl Streep, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, he, he's so into that he's, he's, this, he's this person. He, that's, that's freedom. Even though he's so in and locked in, he's still free. You know, he's free of Daniel Day-Lewis who's a nice, nice, very nice guy and whatnot, you know, normally. But I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis wouldn't take a bowling ball and try to kill some boy with it, throwing it at him. Not Daniel Day-Lewis, but that character or the person he's being would, and he tried to do that. So that's what, that to me, is when you become good and when you recognize that is when you finally accept yourself for who you are and the fact that you're not perfect. Because most actors that try to do everything perfect and just, that's bad. Because then you're acting. And somebody, I forgot who it was, said, whatever you do, don't ever let them see you act. <laughs> don't ever let them see that. Because then you're in trouble. Because then people are looking at you like, mm, you know, you've, you've seen people perform or act and, and say, mm, okay, that was okay, I didn't, you didn't really buy it. But the person that you see, like uh, when you said like uh, Kristen Bale and Vice or whatever. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. he, he was he he was all the way in. He wasn't trying to be perfect. He was so busy being a flawed person. Dick Cheney is not perfect. Dick Cheney was terrible. He's not perfect, so Kristen Bale didn't have to didn't have to try to be perfect. Okay, I mean, if we get religious or something, the only the the only person, I guess, closest to being perfect was what, Jesus? Jesus Christ or somebody? You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know what I'm saying? And 
Jesus Christ, if you read the Bible, any of that, wasn't perfect himself. <laughs> you know, he, he had flaws too. So you, once, you, once you get to the point of accepting yourself and, and saying, okay, this is who I am. I'm going to just get into this as me and I'm just going to let it go and be free and just let go. That's when you got some beautiful stuff going on. It was great too in Vice because the Cheney character, the Dick Cheney was more restrained um, <laughs> with sort of this anger like bubbling at the surface, whereas Lynn Cheney, um, played by Amy Adams, was great and she was emotional and power driven mm -hmm. and it was a great combination right. to see the two of them together. And uh, it, it was just, I left that film thinking it was gonna be lighter and more like sort of this like sexy rock and roll version of it. And mm -hmm. I was, it took me like an hour to feel normal afterwards, whatever normal is, but yeah. it, it was pretty emotional. It was, it was not a light movie, it was excellent, but it really affected me. Now, now the daughter, mm -hmm. she's in politics. Uh -huh. Okay, she's a combination of the two, which is really scary, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Because she has his dark, underside but she has her mother's emotional side like like Lynn Cheney was so she's in Congress now and she's sitting back there sneering and saying stuff and she just got in there she just got in there now they've elevated her all the way up in the House of Representatives to be the, the top Republican female there's women been there in the house on the women on the Republican side they put her there because they need somebody to counteract, if they, or so they think, Nancy Pelosi. So they got his daughter there who has that sinister uh, Dick Cheney thing, but she's out with it like her mother. So it's like, whoa. See, I've heard her already say some stuff. I'm like, that was crazy. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's just, it's just funny how that is. It's just funny. And, and, and getting back to being an actor, being able to, like Bill Duke said, it's like falling into darkness backwards. To do that, it's like that whole, you know, that experiment, uh, if you've ever been in one of those uh, psychiatric, where you trust things, you know. Oh, yeah, where we you do know that. Yeah. Somebody has to catch class. you. Uh -huh. Yeah, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like that, where, okay, you got to let yourself, and <laughs> be honest with you, it's hard to let yourself go when somebody got to catch you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't care how great of an actor you are. It's hard to fall back and you got somebody back here trying to catch you that you don't know <laughs> or you don't know if they're going to be able to catch your big fat ass like me. It's like, okay, I'm still, okay, I'm, I can't let go to this, you know, because I'm scared I'm going to hit my damn head. But what he said was basically once you're able to just free fall backwards, then you're there, you know. So, so it's, it's a little more work I got to do, you know. <laughs> Speaking of older, and this is a sensitive topic, but we'll just go there, and if you want to stop, we can. We were talking earlier about a lot of women that you've known that have been, they've been actors, and maybe 40 plus, they go home. And so we kind of talked about how, I'm not saying all females, mm -hmm. but some, we get our identity from being cute or sexy or whatever, and then when society tells us that's done with, then we don't have that same identity anymore. So you said that maybe for men it's easier, of course, because they can kind of be in this character mode. Do you think women can transition to a character mode? I think women have the skills to do that, but mm -hmm. they're not allowed to. Mm -hmm. they're not, they're, 
See, this is a this is unfortunately this is a this is a male-driven industry, and particularly a young male-driven industry. And and it's unfortunate and to see the fact that a lot of women are not allowed to do that. Then, being honest, a lot of women can't do that because they don't want to do that. Sure, mm-hmm. we talked about that earlier. See, they, 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 and it's not. A, I don't want to say a lot, but some women don't want to do that no. because they, 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 their looks and whatnot was so powerful and prevalent in their work that to be older, they couldn't do it. They can't do it. You have exceptions. You have, uh, uh, oh, Glenn Close in the movie, the new movie she wanted to go Oh, The Wife? Oh, my gosh. I haven't seen it yet. I just got the screener. Amazing. Okay, okay. See, Mm -hmm. there's women like that in, of course, Meryl Streep. Mm -hmm. And you have some some other, like, uh, oh, uh, what's her name? Um, Helen Mirren. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Judy Dench. Mm-hmm. A lot of these women, and they are fantastic because they accepted their 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 aging, and also they were given opportunities to age. That is true. A lot of women not given these opportunities, and I think that's wrong. I think it's wrong that the industry is set up where a a, a man is allowed to get old and fat or whatever, and women aren't. Women are. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, you know. Yeah, no, I agree. But we talked about earlier that, that even with men, that they can be held to those standards as well. And then sort of the pretty boy, you know, hunk then can no longer play that anymore. But we talked about maybe the quirky types that were never really that, yeah. whether they were male or female, they can kind of bridge that gap to playing an older, quirkier version because it wasn't reliant on the sexiness factor. Well, you know, all throughout... All throughout Hollywood, from the very beginning of the you know the early 1900s and the golden age of Hollywood, that's been the problem with men and women, the beautiful people. That's been a problem. A lot of those people committed suicide. Mm-hmm. The women and the men yeah. killed themselves. Some of them just quit, like Greta Garbo. You know, I want to be alone. That woman left Hollywood at the height of her career in the, like the early 40s and just left and moved off to New York and for what, 50, 60 years was a recluse, you know, in, a, in an apartment in, on, on Fifth Avenue somewhere, you know, for the rest of her life. And it's just weird. But, and, and this is something I found, and I'm fortunate in <laughs> the fact that I might have been the leading man maybe once or twice, but even as that little boy in the first, third grade or whatever, I was like, no, I don't, I, I'm, something in me recognized, no, I don't want to be that leading man. I, I want to be the evil sultan that got the character. <laughs> See, I, something in me, it hit me even at that age. Something happened, and it was, I'm like, what, eight or nine or seven or eight or whatever, I'm a little kid, but something in me, Whatever it was, said no, you, and I've always been like that. I've been in shows, I've been in a few shows where I was the lead, and I was like, oh, man, oh. But then I always, I always excelled and got great reviews or good reviews as that quirky character. 
even if it was a lead character, it was still somebody that wasn't the heroic pretty guy, you know. No, I've never been there because I don't look like that. So what I'm saying is, it's been great like that. And I've accepted it. But see, and, and, and I find this especially in, in voiceover and animation, where a lot of my female friends or actors, you know, female actors, even, even though they're not being seen on camera, a lot of them can't break it down using just the voice to be a crackly old lady. And, and a lot of them can't do that because they, they won't, they can't accept that in themselves. And I had a friend of mine who was trying to do animation who got frustrated. And I finally had to tell her, I said, why don't you stop being good looking? I said, this is, this is, nobody see your face. I said, why can't you just be that craggly old hag? <laughs> you no, know, and, and seriously, and she like, uh, and finally, she said, you're right. Now she's, it's hard to do animation anyway, but she's worked better and she's doing better now because I said, they can't see your face. You Very attractive woman. And then there's some really, really gorgeous women that I know that's playing all the animation stuff, all the different characters. Uh, the woman that's playing the new Rocky from the Rocky and Bullwinkle. Tara Strong is a very attractive woman. Very attractive. Hey, Bullwinkle. I mean, because <laughs> she can, she, mm -hmm. her mind. And see, in this business, you have to, you have to break it down. You have to, and when I say break it down, you got to just break it down. I did a short film for a guy, and uh, he said, man, um, uh, I, I need you to play this homeless guy. I said, cool. He like, hey. I said, yeah. He said, now you're gonna be over here. I said, now am I gonna be in that refrigerator box right there? He said, yeah. I said, great. I'm in there, I got garbage all around me, and I'm laying in there. And it's like, yeah, because cool. Because it's like, I get to break and be free. I get to, you know, and I mean, I've studied and been around and seen enough homeless people, and, I, and that's terrible, to know and understand, you know, what that is. And I've seen it, I've talked to people like that. Mm. You know, I've talked to people. I used to do that in Chicago. I used to sit over in Grant Park and, and sit there, you know, and sometimes I have a, eat my little sandwich or something, and they would come up and say, man, can you help me? Can you help me, brother, can you help me out? I, I said, yeah, okay. I said, sit down for a second. I've talked to these people, and you find out all kind of weird stuff that they've gone through. They're very bright, a lot of them. Most of them. Exceptionally bright. Those are the ones that become the craziest. Mm. There's a lot of Einsteins walking through through the park and out there on, on the side of the road. There's a whole lot of them. Yeah. Because there's because things. See, the guys that's not too smart <laughs> usually stick somebody up. <laughs> it might end up in jail. But you get a lot of smart, brilliant people out there on the side of the road, standing out there. When you come down the ramp on the freeway, they got to sign up. Something went on and something happened in their life it's usually some kind of relationship situation or something like that that's snapped them out. I've sit there, I've talked to people, you know, and I'm, and, and I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy, that's wow. Yeah. 
So when the guy said, you got to play this homeless guy, I said, cool. And he said, man, wow. I said, yeah. I said, he homeless, but that don't mean he, he don't have a brain. He got problems. He got stuff that, you got to have a problem to end up out there. Something went wrong. I went to school with a boy who was a troubled kid in school and in junior high school. And I, he, Leonard, I forgot his last name, but he had a strange look that you couldn't forget. And I remember seeing him years later and I looked, he didn't really notice me, but I looked, I said, that's Leonard. Mm -hmm. And he was basically out on the street, standing there, you know, had kind of lost it. And I was like, mm-hmm. He was a problem in school. And that's when I was, I was saying, I think earlier when I was saying about a lot of people, especially in this modern day, are forced into being or trying to put them in places where they shouldn't be. And he had a, he had a mechanical aptitude, but he was being forced to become a college preparatory person. We're just now getting back. We're just now getting back to putting people in schools and trades. People make good money in these trades. I mean, plumbers and oh, yeah. electricians. <laughs> Have something go wrong with your house. And see how much you paying them to come fix it. And they 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 doing 15, 10, 15 of these jobs a day. And they got it down where they are a half hour and you paying a couple hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we, we force people into stuff like that. We force people into nine to five jobs like they were trying to force me into. Same thing. This is a trade. I'm, in a, I'm a tradesman. And I was forced into being a nine to five, you know, college preparatory person. Yeah, I mean, I had an ability to learn. I got damn good SAT scores. Okay, but uh, I was like smart enough <laughs> to say, I'm not supposed to be here. And lost wives and girlfriends and family mad at me. But I'm like, okay, you be mad. Get glad. Scratch your ass, because I'm getting out of here. <laughs> That's the old expression from down south. You know, it's like, no, hell no. Uh-uh. I know who I am. I know what I'm supposed to do. And this is what I, I always say to people, especially aspiring actors, because I get friends of mine saying, oh, my, um, my, my, my nephew is coming out there, and can you give him some advice? I say, yeah, I can give him advice. I say, and when they call me, I'll say, okay, how bad do you want this? Well, you know, uh, I, 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 I want to do this, but I, I still want to have something to fall back on. I say, well, no, you don't need to do this. I asked you how bad do you want this? And you telling me about trying to find a job to fall back on. Why are you falling back? Like Bill Duke said, if you falling back, you gotta fall into the abyss. You falling back on a job. Then why don't you just keep that job? Then you don't have to fall. I tell him, I say, how bad do you want this? Like my friend, they say, how bad do you want that? Bad enough for somebody to say, if you do that, I will kill you. Well, kill me then, because I'm going to do this. 
I said, this is what this life is. This is no bed of roses. You're going to get rejected 99.9% of the time. And it's going to be whether they don't like you or you fucked up the audition, <laughs> which happens because, <laughs> you know, we all do that, you know, or, or the fact that, you know, you look like somebody that, uh, yeah, I had women, uh, clients say, you know, you look like the guy that I dated and I hated him or something, you know, <laughs> what can you do? You can't do nothing with that. You're going to get all kind of crazy stuff in this business. Why you don't get hired? Or they're going to say, you know, I've auditioned for stuff where they say, they decided to use a woman. I'm like, okay. <laughs> or they decided to go white. Or they decided to go Asian. Or they decided to go Latino. Or they decided to do this. Or we want somebody gay. Or we want somebody a transgender. All kind of stuff. You're going to get rejected like that. So you can't sit there and you got to just say, okay. Keep it moving. Keep it moving because that's how it is. The skin got to be thick. We got spots on us that is not thick. We all got points where it's like, oh man, they didn't like me. We all get there sometimes and you snap out of it. You know, and then you go to the next audition or get next one you book. It's like, yeah. And then, you know, the one after that is like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's just this life. And I love it. I mean, I've never, never, ever, since I've been in this business, and I can tell you straight up honestly, I've never had a thing that I'll just quit and go back home. I've never had that. Because I knew that me going back home, what am I gonna do? I can't do nothing else. I can't do anything but this and be successful at it or really do it. I can't work no job. I mean, <laughs> I was, um. My first job for the insurance company. I would, I was there and I got sick the first day because I had, I don't like coffee and I had never really drank coffee, but everybody was drinking coffee. We're gonna go take a break and have a coffee. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, is that what I'm supposed to do? So I went and had a coffee and I'm like, whoa, oh. So I spent half the day in the bathroom, sitting on this toilet like this, oh! And they knew I was sick and they were laughing, like, oh, he's sick. So finally I come out at the end of the day, we all on the elevator, on the 20th floor, <coughs> coming down, and they say, get to the bottom, the door open, they says, well, just think, we gotta do this all over again tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, shit. Mm-mm. Well, you can deal with rejection and how much that hurts, or you can deal with office politics and you have to be around a person, a group of people for eight hours a day that you know it doesn't matter what you do, you're yeah. not going to get the right end of the stick. Oh, and, yeah. And, and so, which is, which is harder? Oh, well, that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is much harder. Oh, I, I, oh, what I'm, me getting rejected? Oh, well, see, <clears throat> there's a little trick that you have to play with yourself as an actor. Okay, it's when you get rejected. You, you can't, you can't say this out loud, but you have to think this. And what you have to think, and I tell people, and they say, really? I say, you have to carry yourself when you don't get the job as if 
they stupid as hell to not book me for that job. That job is going to be a disaster because I didn't get it. <laughs> you have to have it in your mind. To the, it, it's a fine line between being egotistical and nuts or just saying, okay, that was their loss. You know, that whole thing, well, that was their loss. And you can't just say that. You have to really believe that. <laughs> and see, after years and years of this business, I believe it. I, I mean, and, and I don't say it to people, or, but I, I just had this, that's, that's their loss. I'm the best for this. I believe that. And that's how you carry yourself through. Now, whether I'm the best or not, that's, that's on somebody else or whatever. But I have to say this for myself. You know, oh, wow. I didn't get that? Wow. Oh, I've been in auditions where, in a callback, I walk in the room and I can instantly <laughs> tell that the director does not like me. And, and when I leave, I'm like, I'm bad because, I get mad at that because I'm like, well, why the hell did you have me in here wasting my time? Not your time. Why did you waste my time? If you don't like me, then why you got me here? And you get that sometimes. I've been in rooms where they love me. They love me. They have me say, can you go back out and come back in? And they have you come back in with another group. And they have you, and they spotlight you in all the groups, and you get nothing. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I had an audition. Oh, they had me do it a hundred different ways. Say it like this. Say it like that. And apple, and you're an apple, and you're supposed to be an apple. And you're standing there like this, and you say the line. And I do all this different stuff. And it's like, yeah. And I leave out, and I'm like, okay. And then the other actors that leave with you say, man, they really liked you. I said, yeah, okay. And they said, what? I said, okay. And don't get it. And then be like, then there's been auditions where you go in and they said, mm, thank you. <clears throat> and then you're like, well, I didn't get that one. The next day, your agent says, you got it. I said, got what? The one you went for yesterday. I said, really? He said, oh, they loved you. Then you get on set and then I, I've asked people, I said, uh, what, 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 what was going on? You, 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 the director, if once they get, they like you, say, well, you didn't, I didn't know you, I didn't think you liked me. He says, oh, I loved you. I didn't need to see any more from you. You were the first choice and I wanted you all along. So it was just, okay. Then you get them where, you know, like I said, it's all kind of crazy stuff. And if you get yourself caught up and all of that, it'll drive you nuts. So you got to go in and do it. And when you come out saying, well, I know I'm good at this and I'm the best for it, so whatever happens, happens. I know I'm the best, so what? If I get it, great. If I don't, they're lost. And that's how you have to do this. And people say, oh, that's not nice. <laughs> no, you don't have to be nice. That's what you're thinking inside. And that's what I tell people, and young actors I know, that, that they get in the business, they say, oh, okay. Because most people quit this because they can't handle the rejection. Because you get more rejection than anything. As an actor, oh. If I told you some of the stuff I was up for that I didn't get, it's like, wow, big stuff. I mean, TV, TV shows, starring in movies, all kind of stuff.
major stuff. And everybody, your agents and managers, everybody's excited. Oh, yes. And you know, and they say to me, they say, you don't seem excited. <laughs> and I say, well, because I haven't gotten a job yet. They said, well, you did a, they, they called and said you did a great job. I'm like, yeah, well, I usually do a great job. I do. So it's like, okay, call me and tell me I got the job. Then I get excited. When they say, you got the job, I'm like, oh, I got it. Cool. Okay, but other than that, no. And, that, and that's, 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 the, that's the thing I try to tell young people or new actors or people coming out here. I say, study your stuff, stay in class, keep working, and if you got to get a job, get a job. If you got to have something to pay your bills while you working at this, do that. But try to get something that's flexible. Don't, don't get out here and borrow money and have people want to kill you. Because I, I, I know people that borrow money to survive out here. And, and, and people want to kill them. Because there's, there's actors out here that will try to live on you or borrow on you and do stuff. And they don't realize, they don't want to realize, I want to kill you. I gave you this money and I need that money or whatever, you know. So don't do that. Get you a little job or something. I don't borrow nothing like that. I don't know. I don't borrow from nobody. I, I don't have to at this point. But I mean, I'm not going to borrow nothing from nobody like that. I might borrow. I borrow from my mom and daddy and them, of course, you know. But I'm not going to borrow from none of these friends of mine because I know that it's tight for them. Now, I got to have that money back. Don't worry. I got this check coming. And um, when I get it, I'm going to pay you first. And, you know, <laughs> I'm at a point now where it's like, wait a minute, you're going to pay me first. I'm broke and you broke. You're going to get that check and you're going to pay me first and your rent is due? Mm -mm. Can you loan me $1,000? <laughs> I'll pay you back. I'll pay you $250 a month. And I say, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you take the next four months and save the $250 each month? And you got a thousand. That woman wanted to choke and kill me. That woman wanted to grab me and throw me on my head. <laughs> but I said, no, hell no. I don't, a thousand dollars. 